Viewer discretion is advised. Welcome to the United Nations of Four. I'm Lucar Dragomir from the United States, and today I'm joined by Mike from Chicago, Illinois. Becky from the UK. And it's Mark from the UK. Welcome back, Mark. How have you been? Pretty good. Raring to go. It's been a couple of weeks, hasn't it? But I, I'm re- I, I was going to stay off until our Hellraiser special because there's so much to watch for that, but couldn't resist coming back off a Chinese ghost story. That's for sure. Oh, we're always happy to have you on. And as always, have to mention your podcast, The Good, The Bad, and The Odd. And I know you and Becky have uh, recorded a new episode about the X-Files. It's something we planned a while ago, didn't we, Becky? We were going to start it a few <laughs> yeah. months ago, but, you know, life and, you know, what did John Lennon say? Um, life's what happens while you're making plans. It was kind of like that. Uh, but we did finally get to get out the first episode. So we covered the first four episodes of the X-Files, and we are intending to get through the entire chronological run of the X-Files. So it's a long-term commitment. So we'd be putting one of those out, say, once a month, once every three weeks or so, four episodes at a time. Uh, It was good fun. Uh, We're both big fans of the X-Files, so this is not a sort of dry, academic, uh, balanced (laughs) view of the X-Files. It's like, oh, we like this episode because of this. I'm looking forward to listening to that because I, too, am a big fan of the X-Files. So you guys have got a lot of content to cover, no doubt. Are you going to be covering the movies at any point yeah, as well? Yeah, I'm sure we will. And maybe some other, yeah, possibly side series like um, like The Lone Gunman. And possibly even the odd episode of Millennium. But we we got to see how we go. But, I mean, the X-Files is our core core uh, focus. And I suspect yeah, yeah. Well, there'll be more ser- by the time we get to the end of it, there'll be even more serious to cover. Of the X-Files, actually. Yeah, that's the way it sounds, which, I mean, I'm all for more X-Files. Yeah, indeed. I say keep it going. Yep. Well, today we will be discussing the classic Hong Kong film, A Chinese Ghost Story. This is actually going to kick off a new category for the podcast that we're going to call UNH Action Zone. We sort of joked about it before, but I figured we'll go ahead and sort of make it official. Uh, basically, Action Zone will feature discussions on some unique action films and some that are also uh, non-horror related. And they'll probably likely be considered bonus episodes when we do them. But before we get to a Chinese ghost story, let's talk about what we've been watching. And we're going to start off with a big one, and that is the season finale of The Walking Dead. But you don't have to worry because we're not going to spoil it if you haven't seen it. So, uh, Mark, I know we've both seen this. What were your overall impressions of that big 
final episode. I I thought it was a good episode. I rather enjoyed it. It did wander around a bit. It went around the houses to get towards the the, the end. Uh, but uh, I found it very satisfying. The, the internet basically exploded over this, and like there was people saying, "I'm never going to watch this again." And you know, oh, it basically, you're going to uh, watch it again. Yeah, it's it's not a spoiler to say it ended on a cliffhanger. I think I think that's okay, but we're not going to yeah. say what that was. But I that did drive me kind of nuts. Though. Yeah, <laughs> but that the, let's say the final scene, the last ten fifteen minutes. Fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Um, and I think this has been a very solid series. I think at the very worst, we've had a good episode. That The worst episodes are good episodes, uh, and the best ones are great episodes. I think it's been very consistent. I, I have to say my greatest joy, though, in The Walking Dead is when we get Psycho Rick. Uh, where he just loses it, he loses his mind over something, and uh, those are always fun. Uh, those are a lot of fun, and he, then he doesn't even acknowledge he's done anything wrong or he's out of control. It's like, what are you looking at? Is that is how he gets to kind of thing? Um, I, I thought it was uh, a really solid finale. It's a shame we have to wait so long to get a resolution. But uh, that's the nature of it, isn't it? I mean, in a, in a few years' time, it won't matter because you'll just binge-watch them on Netflix and just skip to the next one. So uh, it won't matter then. But uh, I thought the addition of the new cast member was was pretty great as well. Uh, yeah, I can't remember who plays him, but that guy... Jeffrey D. Martin. Jeffrey D. Martin, yeah. There you go. Um, who, who, funnily enough, is in... There's a strange link to this and Batman versus Superman because <laughs> Bruce Wayne's parents are Jeffrey D. Morgan and the woman who plays Maggie in Warren Cohen. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, she's an English actress as well. She's she's a very chameleonic actress. She don't see her in much, or if I've seen her, sometimes I just do not recognise her. Uh, and she 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 plays completely different characters in stuff she's in. So she's kind of cool. But having said that, in Batman versus Superman, it's an on you know she's only on screen. It's seconds, not even minutes, seconds, you know. So, uh, yeah, I really enjoyed it. So it drove you a bit nuts, Lucard. That cliffhanger ending really did. Also, I, I definitely felt like it could have been tightened up a little bit to have been shorter. I, I don't think it needed to be, what was it, a, a, an hour and a half episode? Uh, well, I watched, um, skipping through the adverts, I think it was about an hour and five minutes, actually. It was, it was actually, there was a lot of ads. There was a lot of ads during this. There was certainly the same scene over and over, wasn't there? The, the same yeah, yeah, and I don't want to give that away. Yeah, it's settled in a dark place, let's put it that way. Yeah, and I mean, I, I do think it's going to set up some really big things. I was just like, like I said, the, the end drove me nuts. Just knowing we're going to have to wait for months and yeah. months to find. I'm probably going to catch Fear the Walking Dead now. I just want to, I want a bit more zombie action on TV. It, Walking Dead is probably my favourite current program. Actually, I really do enjoy it a lot. So I'm going to try Fear the Walking Dead, and after that, I may even try Z Nation. Uh, I, I want to give that, that a go. Um, yeah, I've seen that around. Yeah, I want to give it a try. Um, I haven't heard anything bad about it. It's just I'm a Walking Dead guy, but I don't think I can just. Twiddle my thumbs till October, I'll be honest. Next up, we have He Never Died, and that's one you've been watching, Becky? I have indeed, and I know that Mike is also a fan of this one. Yes, very much. I um, really, really enjoyed it. It's basically, it's very kind of slow burn, and you really don't get much information. Unfortunately, I saw a poster that gave quite a bit away in terms of the story, which is quite unique, I thought. And it's been described as a kind of supernatural John Wick, if that gives you any indication. 
um, and it's from two yeah and it is well it's from 2015 and it's i think a canadian american um horror film written and directed by jason krausick maybe and it stars henry rollins and he's basically a loner he goes to bingo he goes to his local diner keeps to himself and he is very strange and you know that something's wrong he has scars on his back that give you a bit of an indication as to kind of where the story's going and he learns from an ex-girlfriend that he actually has a daughter and has as this girl kind of comes into his life he gets pulled back into society a little bit he starts to kind of speak to people whatever and that's when stuff starts happening. People are following him. We're not quite sure what's going on. And you get very subtle kind of reveals all the way through. And the ending is, I've heard it kind of praised and also really criticised. But I thought it was a really interesting kind of take on this kind of story. But it's hilarious. I mean, he's, you know, Henry Rollins is is one moment hilariously laugh out loud just in the, in the direct way he delivers his lines and in the next instance he's terrifying on screen he just kind of changes between and I think if you know if we if we were scoring it I'd probably give it a 9.5 out of 10 I loved it that wow, much it's like praise. the best film I've seen all year yeah what did you reckon what? Mike Oh, I, I would agree with that. I, I'd probably give it a 9 out of 10. I think that it's so great at balancing laugh-out-loud funny moments with, like, badass action. I totally love it, and I totally love the ending and the reveal and the mystery leading up to it. I, I think it's a great movie, and Henry Rollins is awesome in it. I, I want to catch this. Is it on Netflix or anything? I think it is, actually. It is now, I think. Next up, we have Hell and Back 2015. And Mark is—is uh, is this the animated? Yes, it is comedy. It's—I really wanted to see it. Mike talked about it quite a while ago, wasn't it, Mike? Yeah. Um, uh, and I've just been wanting to get around to it ever since, and I finally did. Uh, I really enjoyed it. It was good fun. It wasn't great, but it was good. Uh, it was goofy. It was pretty adult. The humor kind of reminded me of kind of Clerks. It was that kind of vibe. So, not a stoner, but certainly, you know, um, dissolute young adults goofing around kind of stuff. Uh, and some of the imagery was actually pretty cool in hell, the sort of demons and, and stuff like that. I, I rather enjoyed it. So uh, I'm glad you recommended it, Mike. Uh, I know you didn't think it was great. You thought it was good, if I remember. Yeah, right. it was all- and I, I'd agree with that. Yeah, I think it's a, maybe a seven out of ten, six, seven out of ten kind of thing. Uh, well worth seeing. It was. It's on Netflix, uh, and it's uh, it's not one to watch with kiddies though. Or anything like that, for no, sure. no, it's not. Uh, but it was a lot of fun. Mila Kunis is in it. Uh, she's kind of fun as this half human, half demon. Uh, I enjoyed it. It was good. That's definitely one I want to check out too. It's been on my list, but now. Did you say it's on Netflix? Uh, definitely check that out. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I think an hour and twenty five minutes, so it's not too long, and it's good fun. Just long enough to hold my attention span. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think if you don't like the first ten minutes, you aren't going to like the rest. But if you do like the yeah. first ten minutes, you're going to like it all. The whole premise is they find this book of the devil crying, uh, and one of the guys is going, "Well, look at him; he's a pussy." And <laughs> so definitely and, not for the kiddies. Yeah. And um, and uh, one wants to borrow a mint off another one, and he says, "Okay, you never give me stuff." He goes, "I will this time." He says, "Okay, swear on the devil's Bible you're going to give me a mint back." And he goes, "Okay, I'll swear." And he gives him a mint. He says, "Sorry, bro, I haven't got a mint." And then they all get sucked into hell because he's, you know, pledged on this book, and they, that—that's the sort of level of 
<laughs> what's going on there? It was, it was fun, though. Sounds right up my alley. I, I got to check this out, too. Mm. Next up, The Last Will and Testament of Rosalind Lee. And uh, Becky, that's one you've been watching. Yeah, I mentioned this last week. The Last Will and Testament of Rosalind Lee was from 2012. And it's actually directed by Rue Morgue founder Rodrigo Godino. And Oh, interesting. Yeah, and it's I believe it's his only um, feature-length film. He's actually... Uh, has a few shots and you can get them on YouTube. And um, a little while ago, I posted in the UNH Facebook group about shots. And this was my kind of um, offering. Um, one of his called um, The Facts in the Case of Mr. Hollow from 2008. It's a brilliant little shot. I really, really recommend checking that out on um, on YouTube. And his style is very kind of it's very slow burn and very kind of creepy and it's one of those again you know straddling the lines between is it supernatural is it not and basically the film stars um Aaron Poole who is the star and I think co-writer of you know the film The Conspiracy have you seen I don't know that one no I've not heard of that Oh my God, it's amazing. I really recommend checking that out. I think it was on Netflix, but it's basically about two guys who um, come across a man who is just, he's just absolutely obsessed with conspiracies. Like his, his flight is papered with all different ones and he goes missing one day. And one of the two guys becomes as obsessed trying to work out everything and he finds a pattern which leads into this particular sect of people. And it's, it's you can describe it as a found footage, but it's one of the better found footage films out there. Like a huge recommend for that one. Um, I think you may have mentioned this in the past because I think I said something like "Oh, real life Mulder" when you said <laughs> that. So I really I, I got to check this out because that sounds like something I'd really be into. Yeah, if, if anybody's put off by the found footage aspect, it's not you know it's not like shaky cam and anything like that really. And it's, it's very much a character piece, and the ending really blew me away. It was kind of, reminded me in a way of, of Kill List, Ben Wheatley's Kill List, if that gives you the kind of oh, vibe. Oh, that sounds cool. Yeah, and tone, yeah. So, um, but the last um, Will and Testament is basically about a man who returns to his childhood home, which is like a huge dilapidated man, well, not dilapidated, but just huge mansion that isn't really cared for and um his estranged mother has died and he's kind of making his way around the house and it's very kind of like a psychological stroke supernatural in that as he's there he starts to kind of see things and things from his childhood come back um people appear outside on security camera something seems to be stalking him and his mum has an obsession with angels and angel statues and this feeds into his faith and why they ended up being estranged because of his lack of faith and the particular way that she tried to force that on him as a child and you learn more from his mother through kind of um monologues as if like she's reading a letter and it, it's it's again like I say it's, this one's a character piece really interesting mm, well might not work for some people it's you can read a lot into it you know you can go one way or the other but I I do enjoy those type of films so I, I mean I think I'd say this was probably an eight out of ten if I was rating it I really enjoyed it sounds like something I would be interested in just because of the subject matter yeah and his mom's played by Vanessa Redgrave that kind of lends a bit of 
oomph to it and it's very much a, a character piece but it is actually i found it to be really scary when was it made 2012 yeah i've never heard of it before it's really strange like because you know Rue Marg found it and you know i'm surprised yeah. he hasn't really done uh, much else but like i say do check out his shots as well um especially that one um the case in the facts of um uh, mr hollow his titling sounds very poe doesn't it for a Poe. Yeah, yeah. Yes. It does, because like his other um shorts are or possibly uh, Lovecraft, you know, it's that kind yeah. of thing. And also a bit MR James as well. Like his yes. other shorts are The Eyes of Edward James and The Demonology of Desire. So mm. Gotta love those long titles. Yeah. <laughs> well, next up we have The Witches from 1966. And Mark, this is one you wanted to talk about. Yeah, this one um, is one that I kind of are taped off the horror channel. Like, it must be two years it's been on my recorder. Um, and I just kept meaning to get around to it. Uh, and it was it intrigued me because it was like a horror series, horror movie. Hammer, Hammer, not one I'd ever come across. And it said, on the, you know, sometimes on movies they give a rating and it said PG. And I was thinking... That can't be that scary, but you know. Uh, anyway, I gave it a look. It's star. It's only got one real star, um, which is a lady called Joan Fontaine, who who's like a, was a sort of medium famous actress back in the day. She's getting towards the end, not the end of her career, but she's certainly playing older roles at this point. Uh, and she basically it starts off a really cool sort of image of a. It's set in Africa. Uh, and like it's night and there's like voodoo drums and she's there's two like black guys there with her obviously her assistants or you know work there and they're terrified and basically this big voodoo head appears in the doorway and she faints and then the, it's the beginning titles and then you see a sleepy little british village and she pulls up and she's the teacher there and she they, they kind of refer to the events at the beginning is like, you know, when she had her breakdown and stuff like this, but it's kind of not really mentioned again. There's this really cool beginning and it's not mentioned. And basically she's in this sleepy village, but it's a very odd place in that it seems fairly normal, but um, her employer is like a vicar or, you know, he's certainly got a dog collar on. Uh, but then she notices the church is dilapidated and no one goes to church there. So it's a really odd sort of set up and it basically it turns out the village is has got witchcraft going on uh because they think they're gonna improve their lot by using witchcraft basically this woman has kind of taken charge of them and she's taught them into like taking part in these practices to try and improve things around the village so it's almost like a prototype wicker man in some ways ah, i have seen this I, I, it's called the devil's own in the u.s is it really it is, yes. Gonna... I was thinking, this sounds incredibly familiar, so I had to look it up. I'm sorry, go ahead. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I'll just check that name. But uh, yeah, Okay, uh, so it's called, yeah, indeed, The Devil's Own Hammer Film. Interestingly, written by Nigel Neal, adapted by Nigel Neal, our friend Nigel Neal of Greater Mass fame. fame. Yes. Uh, and it dealt with some of the premises he was interested in. In uh, It's witchcraft, it's supernatural, but the approach of the practitioners is practically based, you know, practically minded. They're doing it for a reason. They're not just doing it because it's a habit. They're trying it to improve their own lot. So it's kind of interesting from that point of view. Uh, I can kind of see where it was a PG. It was fairly tame. There was a little bloodletting here and there, but mostly it was fairly tame. Uh, but it was kind of fun. I kind of liked it. It was just something that I'd 
um, hadn't been on my radar in any way, shape or form. And I, you know, I fancy myself as pretty knowledgeable about um, uh, Hammer movies. Um, but it is it's very unusual to be so contemporary in Hammer films, uh, apart from their goofy, you know, Dracula in the 70s films. Mostly they stick to sort of historical gothic stuff. So this was kind of um, interesting to see. It was the last major role Joan Fontaine played um, was in this. I think there were a few a few Hammer stalwarts in the cast, but it wasn't the usual directors, wasn't the usual music. It was kind of off on its own almost, as it were. Um, it was okay, though. Yeah, I didn't mind it. Yeah, it's been years since I've seen this, but I remember liking it. It's definitely one of those rare Hammer horror films that kind of almost flies under the radar, isn't it? Yeah, it is. The thing is, it kind of sits between... There's a really good uh, sort of witchcraft film uh, with Christopher Lee in, actually, called City of the Dead from 1960, I think, which is a really cool one. Again, people go into a sleepy hamlet and, and it turns out there's some sort of witching presence. And at the other end of the scale, it's got the the Wicker Man. It kind of falls between those. It's n- it's not as good as either of those, but it's kind of fun. It's uh, unfortunately, apparently, uh, Nigel Neal put in a lot more sort of digs at sort of uh, English mannerisms and so on within the film. He wanted to sort of. It was kind of. He tried to make it a little satiric, as it were. Um, but apparently, the production team. Did that. I think they filmed those parts, but they they edited them out, so it became a more serious than Nigel Neal intended. And I, if I know Nigel Neal, he would have been really angry about that. He hated anyone interfering with his his vision. So uh, they made it more serious than it was intended to be by the writer. But there you go. Did you um, manage to get the? Um, was it We Are the Martians? The book? Did it? Come no, from? it never did come. Oh. I was waiting for it, but uh, it never arrived, so uh, I'm, I, I haven't been able to read that. It may come some point, but uh, I don't hold out much hope. Yeah. I, don't, it's got, I looked at it, sorry, we're kind of going off on a tangent. Back in, I discussed We Are the Martians during the... Was it during the Quatermass episode? We certainly discussed it. And yeah. It's a book yes. about Quatermass, uh, and it, I was waiting for it. But if I look at the website, it's a little vague whether it's even out. It's hard to, to work out. But I took my money, but nothing got delivered so uh, uh i i did put it into dispute hoping and i did specifically say i don't really want my money back i'd rather want the product but if there right. isn't a product right. i'll take the money back that was my kind of my view so i was hoping that would be a positive yeah we'll send it kind of thing but yeah it's one of the bad things about amazon sometimes yeah. you order something that's well old it and... wasn't amazon it's a direct website actually oh okay so cool. uh huh. so yeah well, let's move on and talk about Dawn of the Dead from 2004. Uh, this is me again. Uh, it's, yes. has, has anyone else seen it recently? Um, it was fun. Yes. Oh, you've seen it recently? Oh, I love this movie. This is all one of my all-time favorite zombie movies, and it's every Halloween it's in my rotation. Uh, oh, nice. I haven't seen it pretty much since it came out, so this was, and I remember really liking it, and I was get a bit worried i was thinking eh, is it gonna stand up is it gonna be you know uh is it gonna fall down uh, i liked it even better this time really enjoyed it i think it's really stood up uh i think it i'm not gonna say it's my favorite Zack snyder movie because re- i'm a big fan of both watchmen and 300 but uh it's really up there for me i really really enjoyed it i think it's a great zombie film one, one of the best zombie films i'd say actually yeah i'd agree 
Uh, it's so much fun. And those, you know, I've, I've, I've always been a, I think I prefer slow zombies because the, they're tension rather than terror. Uh, if you know what I mean, they're they're the slow burn rather than the not jump scare, but certainly things happening really fast and getting out of control fast. But man, this was exciting and fun, and it was really funny seeing Ty Burrell in there being a right dick. Uh, you know, I'm, I've been watching him in Modern Family recently, where he's like a nice guy, but in this, he was a lot of fun, being really horrible all the time, being constantly sarcastic. And I also like the fact that in his sarcasm, he kept giving people ideas of how to sort of solve their problems even though he didn't intend you know he wasn't trying to help at all he was just saying ah oh, should we do this then and they go yeah that's a great idea he said ah oh, oh. it's kind of like that. that was funny yeah i think i saw this when it came out initially yes i mean it's over 10 I, years old now yeah but I, I you know what i don't remember a whole lot about it i'd like to go back and check it out again perhaps it'll come on netflix at some point or i can find an old dvd of it I mean, it's got a terrific beginning, you know, with the the a little girl zombie attacking a couple in bed, and it's great set piece of this woman driving through this sort of suburb with absolute mayhem going on around her, and the camera really following her as, as the cars go in. It, it was. Really I do remember that part, and I think yeah. Ving Rhames was really good as well as Kenneth the uh, Kenneth the cop. It was really cool. I tend to like him in most anything he's in. Yeah, he was. I mean, I liked the whole thing. I thought it was really good um, all round. Um, I could have. Uh, I, I, I'm on the fence about the very final post-credit sequence. It's kind of. It's a bit that of a sucks. shame, but it's. Yeah, I want to see these guys. I want to see them the further adventures of these guys, basically. Uh, even though there wasn't many left. <laughs> right. It's just a pointless scene. That that yes. that final yeah. credit scene is just stupid. I yeah. didn't get what the point of it was. Yeah, I would have been happy if they just faded off into the into the water, which is kind of how the original one ends, isn't it? You just see them get to their place and then it ends. It's kind of cool. I do hold the original as the best zombie film ever made, just to add to that. Yeah, it's a classic. I, I don't think you can beat that one. Okay. And I'm sure at some point we... We will probably discuss both films. That would be a fun versus episode, actually. It would be. I have to say that this film clearly is an influence on the video game Dead Rising. Uh, I was just thinking oh, that. <laughs> as, as is the original. Um, I love that I mean, game so much. There's bits of this that look exactly like that game. Uh, and it's I th- Sam, my co-host Sam, was telling me he thinks the sequel to this, it might be... I'm not sure if it's Day to Day or some sequel to this. Oh, no, I think it was a planned sequel to this was going to set Survivors in, like, Las Vegas, which, ironically, is pretty much Part what Dead, Dead, Rising, uh, Dead Rising 2 is, 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 is that, you know, setting. Oh, yeah, that's what I meant. <laughs> um, Dead Rising 2. Dead yeah. Rising 2 is pretty much that. That would have been fun, too, but uh, never happened. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I, I would like to see that. I think it marks a real, you know, great debut from Zack Snyder, actually. Yeah. I think it's his best movie. I do. I think it's up there. Uh, like I say, I really like 300 and I really like Watchmen. Um, but Dawn of the Dead is no slouch. You know, it's a really good film. Really, uh, Nine out of ten for me, I think. Wow, very high praise. Mm. Well, from the high praise to one that I don't believe is going to get so much high praise. Oh. We mentioned it on here last week briefly. Strap that in. is... <laughs> <laughs> that is... Uh, Batman versus Superman. 
Yeah, we're going to have spoilers, I think, to talk about this. Yeah. I think, is it only Mike and I that have seen it? I have not seen it yet, so I I believe so. Yeah, yeah, if you want (laughs) to. Well, (laughs) you shouldn't. I would say just avoid it. Um, There's a few things I did like about it, but mostly it was like I hated the fact that they took these characters and made them miserable and, you know, they... They were just doing things that Superman was doing things that Superman really shouldn't be doing. Yeah, and, and there was the whole thing of like one of the big issues with Man of Steel was that there wasn't enough Superman saving people. And in this one, we get a whole montage of it, but he looks depressed the whole time. <laughs> He's like, Oh, I'm saving this boat. Oh, Superman, you saved that girl from the fire. I guess. And it's like, Jesus Christ, you got a Superman who doesn't care about saving people. Batman doesn't care about killing people. Yeah. Everybody's just fucking sad. Yeah, it's <laughs> like we hate... Uh, the only one that felt like, oh, yeah, this could be a fun character was um, uh, Wonder Woman. Uh, she guess. wasn't in it long, but, you know, at least there was one bit in a major fight at the end. She gets, like, her ass kicked and thrown, you know, a great distance and land. But she, like, shakes herself off. She looks up at the fight, little smile, a little, the only person to smile in this film. <laughs> it's like, the only smile in the movie. Now it's on, you know, but at least Wonder Woman does that, you know, at least she's into it. Whereas the others are like, oh, I mean, I can understand Batman that's not going to smile. That, that's fine. In fact, if Zack Snyder was to make a Batman film, all right, where he didn't kill people willy-nilly, they'll be fine with that. But really, this he should not be making Superman films. It's just this is an awful Superman. It's like emo Superman. Well, it's just annoying. It's not just he's really unhappy about stuff. It's like there's one bit where um, a terrorist has got Lois Lane as a hostage, you know, with a gun to her head, and you know if it's Christopher Reeve Superman, he'd just use super fast powers and take the gun out of his hand or just put his finger in the barrel or something and just not smile Zach Snyder Superman. He's gonna smash through shit. Yeah, he's got to throw this guy through two brick walls. Uh, <laughs> just to stop him doing, you know, it, it, why? What's yeah, what I love about that scene is that it's supposed to be like this whole setup where it's like, oh, now everybody thinks that because the scene starts out with these people who work for Lex Luthor and they kill all these people there. And yeah. then afterwards, they're like, oh, Superman killed all these people. And I'm like, guys, he's g- they're filled with bullets. Bullets. Who what are your fucking forensic them? people? Did, did you, did you catch, sorry, we're going to run here. Did you catch the character who had the CIA plant that like, the oh, terrorist yeah, Jimmy shot? Olsen? Jimmy Olsen got shot straight away. Dead. Holy crap. <laughs> yeah, he was a secret agent. <laughs> Yeah, and he got shot straight away. So it's just, let's just get rid of this character. Wow, that's just wrong, man. Uh, Like, I I do want to check this out when it comes uh, out uh, on (laughs) video. Just because, you know, there's been so much talk about it. But I would not pay full price at the theater just from reviews. And, of course, from what you guys have told me as well. Uh, Because, Mike, you and I have talked about this off air. Like, it's Uh, it's a train wreck. But it's like the train wreck from Super 8, where where it's like a badass looking train wreck. Like, it's glorious to look at it, just because it's so shitty. Um, I'm going to say a few things I liked, because I didn't entirely hate it. I, I, you know, I'd still give it, say, three or four out of ten. Um, I did like Ben Affleck's Batman a lot. The only thing I didn't like about it was Batman was shooting people. Uh, dead, you know, he was killing people. Yeah, he slaughters people. Which, that that's is, insane. That's nuts. That is just wrong. That is not uh, Batman. And I wasn't happy when he 
we saw he was branding people as well. I mean, that's a bit much, but well, I, like I could it. just about live with that because, you know, I can understand this is a 20-year on-the-street Batman. He's a hardened, you know, to, He's to all this. branding people. Yeah, he brands people <laughs> with a little bump. My God. And they even say, as a news report, when someone receives a brand from Batman... It's basically a death sentence. They get killed in prison. So I took Batman. it to mean that Batman only brands pedos or, you know, people, the, the scum of the scum. That's how I read it. But they didn't explain that. You know, they just Batman's said, like, when Batman brands you, you're going to die, basically. Yeah. He, he's just like, you're my cattle now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but I did like that. I thought it was really good. In fact, his character it almost felt to me like a 20-year-old version of Michael Keaton's version of Batman. Do you know what I mean? Kind of a bit that. dark and, and stuff like that. I, that was my favorite Batman, I think, in film. Uh, yeah, I do, I do like that Batman. I, in terms of live action, I, I, I think I like Michael Keaton as Batman the most. However, yeah. um, I really did like Ben Affleck. And I think another movie with Affleck, if he takes, if, if, he, if they do it well, you know, take the good elements. Um, I mean, the, his interaction with Alfred was really good in this film as well. I really liked Alfred. Did you like it, Mike? Yeah, I, I liked a lot of the Batman stuff besides him killing people. Yeah. Even though I thought the writing on him was terrible in the third act. Like, the whole thing, like, the big infamous thing where it's like, oh, both of our moms are named Martha? I guess we're best friends now. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's like well, are you I'm, fucking kidding me? Who wrote this, was, a six-year-old? I'd like to have seen uh, Lex Luthor reveal that his mother's name was Martha and watched the surprise on their face. What do we do yet? Uh, it was like, wow. I mean, all they had to do was change it to say, help my mother, and it would have been fine. It's just the fact she was called Martha changed Batman's mind after this massive fight. It's like, oh, for goodness sake. Yeah, uh, and can we mention how fucking Superman's parents are just the shittiest parents in the world? I mean, are. you got uh, uh, Pa Kent, he comes back from the dead to tell Superman, you know, I tried to save people once, but then I just killed all of our horses. It's like, what? Yeah. what? Yeah, and then his mom's like, you know. Story. Yeah, and then Mike Kent's all like, you know, be their hero, Clark, or don't. You don't owe us anything. It's like, what the fuck, man? Really? Yeah, this is, they're just, I mean, I, I, that's one of the real problems I have with the first Man of Steel. It, Parkin was not Parkin. That was not Park. Parkin is a moral upright man. What's Christopher Reeve's Batman, uh, Superman, to see how Parkin should be? Not, yes. Not this ridiculous, don't do, don't get involved stuff. It's like, what? Anyway, um, I'm trying to think. Messing up my childhood. Jeez. Uh, and I mean, Lex Luthor was. I mean, I didn't mind Lex Luthor in the first act. I didn't. But then either. he turned into like Jim Carrey. Uh, yeah. <laughs> as the Riddler. It's like, oh, for goodness sake. Um, um, but unfortunately, it, they had it re a bit toned down in the first act, but he just got wilder and wilder, didn't he? It was like, it was kind of silly. Um, I'm trying to think. There were some other things that was like, oh, my God, why did they do that? Uh, the whole oh, oh. I like the fact Batman was ch major chase. He was chasing the bad guys. There were machine gun fighting backwards and forwards. Yeah, okay. So he was machine gunning them, and they were machine gunning him. Superman comes down, stops Batman's car. Let's him get away. It's fine. Just you know, you go your way. I want to talk to Batman. <laughs> it's like what? Oh my what god! What are you doing? <laughs> and that whole fight scene, the whole Batmobile sequence, is completely pointless because Batman goes there to get kryptonite from this ship. So he goes there, just murders all of these thugs, 
and, but then he doesn't get the kryptonite. They get away. And then another action scene happens off screen where he gets the kryptonite. It's like, yep. couldn't you guys have just done this in that scene? <laughs> There's no fucking... The boat is still right there. He's right there. I like the fact he does all this massive detective work to find something called the White Portuguese. And there's a massive boat in the harbour called the White Portuguese. Exactly. <laughs> you think, Could you have just used Google? <laughs> you know, or something. <laughs> it's like, wow. Um, uh, it just goes on and on. And, and Lex Luthor's plan. I, what, I can't, plan? Uh, what was he doing? He oh, was know. like a guy who was like fighting with his action figures. He just wanted them to fight each other for. I guess, yeah, just to it's do like it. I, I know I've I've got, I've got into this ship and I've got the corpse of Zod. Why don't I cut my wrist, you know, my finger and drip blood on him? Uh, I, I guess there might be a longer cut of this where someone has explained, but it was just it was properly ridiculous. Yeah, well, I know there is going to be an R-rated version, but yeah. I, from the sounds of it, it's just it's not going to. Help, even if they had these scenes back. Uh, and I mean, yeah, the last, I, I can't imagine the last thing that this movie needs is more shit in it. No, this yeah. needs a fan cut to where it's cut down significantly. Yeah, where Batman isn't just shooting people for a start. I don't yeah, care. If we just cut out I've, all the murder. I think Superman's a lost cause. You know, there's no cut that will make Superman look better in this, but at least Batman could look like. I mean, there was some cool imagery with Batman, definitely. There was. Oh, and also, we haven't talked about the fact it keeps having dream sequences, and oh, we don't know so what many. they are. There's some bizarro scenes in this that don't make any sense, but they look cool. There's one bit where Batman's in a in the desert in a long duster, and oh, it looks looks really cool. Looks really cool. What's it mean? He's fighting parademons, you know, these aliens right. uh, at one point. And Superman seems to have an army of aliens and want to kill Batman. Ah, oh, man. It just and they goes... don't, like, <laughs> explain this? It, well, it's just, like, he, it's just a dream. Well, he just wakes up, but then he sees... He wakes up, but then he sees the flash in a, like, vortex saying, you were right. And then that doesn't get explained. It's like... Yeah, uh, it just ha- it has nothing to do with anything. How did a movie with this much money behind it come out in this? I've got no fucking idea. I mean, <laughs> I've got no idea. The fact that it's... the big bad guy is is basically a cave troll from Lord of the Rings. Exactly. <laughs> oh my god! Are so confident in this movie. Oh no! What is going through your mind while making this movie? Like this is made by like a madman. Yeah, it's like stop doing this, please stop. And I'm just hoping they're gonna make. I'm hoping Suicide Squad works. Uh, the thing is, I don't want DC to give up on their films, but I they do. gotta give. Well, Suicide Squad looks like it could be a lot of fun. I'm, just end I'm, it after that. Yeah, after maybe. maybe. I, I mean, I want to see a Wonder Woman film. Um, the reason is, I've heard of you know people say you know I took my daughter to see Wonder Woman. She loved. Uh, sorry, see this film, and she loved Wonder Woman. And the only one who actually comes out without any issues, apart from, you know, if you like the actress or not, she's not given much to do here, um, is the fact that it's a good role model uh, for girls. I just hope the movies are PG or, you know, isn't too violent. And, uh, and we, I mean, you got a sense from the, there, there was a bit of setup as well of other films in this. And so we got an idea that I think Wonder Woman's film is going to be set in, in the First World War from, yeah. from, what was happening in this film. Um, and I hope it's, it's, um, I hope she's not like a miserable as sin, you know, just a, a miserable bastard. Like, like, <laughs> <Superman> was. 
<laughs> I mean, I'm fine with Batman being like that. That's fine. That's Batman's. Yeah. Superman's not like that. Yeah, exactly. And they were saying, yeah, at one point, Lex Luthor's going, yeah, we got God versus human, day versus night. And you think, no, you've got night versus another bit of night, really. It's, this is not light and darkness. This is just depressed versus angry. That's exactly. what it's like. <laughs> it was That's kind of, wow. And also, Amy Adams in this, she was she was there to be rescued oh by Superman. God. That's yeah. all she did. That's all she did. Get into trouble to be rescued. No. I felt sorry for Amy Adams, really. I felt sorry for I felt sorry for Henry Cavill. He really was un- badly used in this. I mean, Superman's so oh man, I can't. I don't think I can talk about this anymore. Yeah, it's just a mess. <laughs> well, let's let's talk about a good superhero show. At least I know season one was. I have not seen season two yet, but uh, Daredevil. Uh, and Mark, you've seen season I've two. I've seen season I'm not going to have any spoilers. Uh, what I can say is, if you like season one, there's bits in this that are way better than season one. Wow. Yes. Way better. Um, I have to say, it, will, I have to say, season one, Wilson Fisk was just amazing as a character. The, the real standout for me in season one was uh, Wilson Fisk. And no, in fact, there was really several really good things in season one. I think Charlie Cox as, as Daredevil, although he was a bit of a blank slate, I think he really played the role well and it worked for me. Um, season two kind of builds on that and it's way better. It's got two main strands uh, and I don't think it's a spoiler to say because I think everyone knows this. One of the main strands is the Punisher and one of the main strands is Elektra. And there's a little interaction, but there's basically two story art, major story arcs going on. Uh, and personally, I much prefer the Punisher stuff. I'm, I'm a big fan of the Punisher. Yeah, uh, I can't wait to see the Punisher. This Punisher played by the guy that played Shane in The Walking Dead, uh, John yeah. Bernthal, I think his name is. And this is a fantastic Punisher. Absolutely fantastic. They really hit on the head, and there's callbacks to the comics. I'm not that familiar with Daredevil, but I am familiar with Daredevil where he, where he intersects with the Punisher. That's where I know Daredevil from, really. Um, and they really nailed some of the scenes and some of the sort of dialogue between them. And the fact that Pun- Punish is almost like a more extreme version of what Daredevil's doing, a way more extreme version. Uh, uh, Daredevil's, in terms of his morality, is more like Batman. You know, he doesn't kill. He doesn't use guns. We all know the Punisher's not that way whatsoever. Uh, so there's yeah. this interesting conflict between the two of them. Um, I overall, thought it was a great season. Um, uh, and I have to say, the entire Punisher strand, I felt, was better than season one. Other than, wow. you know, Wilson Fisk was amazing in season one. So there's this yeah. kind of a vacuum in terms of, like, the big bad, if you know what I mean. Uh, um, though there's some pretty bad, bad guys in this as well. Really sort of evil. It's very brutal. It's way more brutal than season one as well. Oh, my goodness. Violence that's that's quite... wild. Uh, and the, the famous scene in s- season one in the corridor, I think it was in episode two, where he takes on a... Gang yeah. of thugs in a corridor. They yeah, amazing fights. Uh, there's an even more amazing fight scene uh, with the Daredevil doing something similar with a gang of bikers. Uh, wow! But oh man, this is in a, uh, a stairwell, so it's three dim- as it were three dimensional fight rather than two dimensional. You know, it's up and down a corridor. And there's a similar reprise of that scene with the Punisher, uh, where he has to. F- I'm not going to say. 
there's a similar road price of, <laughs> in episode nine where the Punisher has a similar encounter. Let's put it that way. It's like the raid. Uh, it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. So get Man. to it. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm sold. I'm, I know what I'm doing after yeah, this podcast. Yeah, I, I, I kept recommending it to someone at work, and he was sort of saying, oh, I'm not sure I'll get to it. He hadn't even seen season one, or he watched the first few, didn't like it. But because he heard some me and my colleagues talking about season two, but, you know, we're careful. We try not to talk about spoilers around people. He, he went home, and he came in the next on the Monday morning. He said, I watched it, Daredevil. I said, oh, what, season one? He goes, no, both. I watched Twenty six episodes over a weekend because he was really enjoying it. So there, wow. there's a testament for you. Yes, definitely. Da- re- well, don't miss this. Do not miss season two of Daredevil. Now, Mark, I got a Very question cool. for you. Um, yeah. Because, and I, I don't want to spoil anything, but uh, in the later half of the season, we get this character called the Blacksmith. Yes, and they build him up a lot. And when they kind of finally reveal who he is. Um, I thought that was a, I don't know how you felt, but I thought that was really fucking lame. I thought that was one yeah, of the lamest was, identities you could have given. I was, yeah, really it was weak. Um, it wasn't who I thought it was going to be at all. Um, and it was kind of cursory, wasn't it? It felt like it needed another episode almost. Yeah. But uh, it was just a character that I didn't give a shit about. Really? It was him. Really? Like yeah. I could tell who it was and it wouldn't be a spoiler. I'm not going to, but it's. It's yeah. really late. I kind of agree with that, but I think the rest of it just made it for me. And in fact, is the sort of inter the final. I'm not going to say the final. The final where the Punisher found himself when that resolved kind of really feeds the Punisher mythos. I think in season three, you know, he's what what he can do and 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 what he's got available what weaponry for example well specifically his weaponry he's got available to him it kind of now makes sense he's got a base to operate from and it'd be pretty cool i mean there were some disappointments i was expecting uh the, the last time we see the punisher i was expecting something way more spectacular than actually happened yeah. i was expecting a chain gun and <laughs> you know all sorts of mayhem to happen but in fact it was kind of low key in terms of the Punisher's uh, presence, but uh, yeah, there was there wasn't it wasn't perfect. There were the point you made, uh, uh, you know, talking about the blacksmith. I, I think you're right. It, it was it, it was it was no Wilson Fisk, was it? You know what I mean? It wasn't that kind of thing at all. Uh, and they did set up some other interesting gangsters early on that kind of fell away. Unfortunately, it would have been more interesting to keep those guys around. Um, but yeah, I kind of agree with you there. I, I do agree that there was a few other cursory things. I will say also the supporting cast. I think uh, I really enjoyed Foggy and Karen as well. Um, I think Karen in particular was an interest. They gave her some interesting stuff to do. She, the, the actress really suited the material. I thought, and there was some court case drama as well that I kind of enjoy. I always like a, a tense court case sort I of agree. interlude. So that was kind of cool, especially with Frank. You know, it's Frank Castle, so you never know exactly what's going to happen in court with him. Well, very cool. Yeah. I'm I'm definitely going to check this out. Maybe yeah. Uh, I think next time when you do, I think next time we talk about, it, I'm sure we will talk about it again. We could. I think we'd just say it's spoilers. And... Yeah, yeah. Is it something you want to catch, Becky? Well, I got so many episodes into the first series, and I was really loving it. And um, you know what it's like; life gets in the way. So I've, I've, I was meaning to get back to the first series anyway. So it's definitely one I'm going to get onto. Mm. How far did you get in? Do you know? <sighs> Six, seven episodes, I think. Did you see the episode which gives you the entire Wilson Fisk backstory? No. 
I think that'll you catch that, you'll be hooked for sure. Yeah. Oh no, I was I was really loving it. Um, but I was yeah. watching it with a friend, and it was just you know you're waiting for somebody, and they just kind of dragging the heels, and you end yeah. up not really, um, watching it. So yeah, I'm, but I'm definitely going to check it out. It's it's, we it's great. It's uh, you know I did mention Walker this my favourite series at the minute, but actually you know what, Daredevil I think trumps it, but. Um, because of the nature of its release, you know, all of the episodes came out at once. It's a bit different from The Walking Dead. You, got, you I wouldn't sit and watch one episode of Daredevil. We could have to watch three or four, you know, at yeah. a time. Um, yeah, it really hooks you when it hooks you. Yeah, it's really good. Uh, and, you know, it's a good length. You know, it's somewhere between 50 minutes and an hour each episode. So it's like, you can sometimes you can just say, I'll watch two, you know, sometimes yeah. one. Um, but there are definite arcs, you know, the, the first four episodes of Pure Punisher. So they make a really good little set. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. Yeah, we may have our second UNH action zone link here. <laughs> I'm a big fan of The Punisher. Uh, Me Sam too. And I, Sam and I watched the three films, even the Thomas Jane one. Now, um, I'll qualify that. I think Thomas Jane is the best Punisher in the worst Punisher film. That's that's what? my view of it. I love it. I really love and, it. Uh, I, I'm not a fan of his film, but I really like Thomas Jane as The Punisher. You didn't like Punisher, did you, Mike? In Daredevil? In uh, the Thomas Jane one. Oh, no. Fuck that Punisher. Fuck there all the go. Punishers of Ford. <laughs> no, I love Punisher. <laughs> Fuck all those movies. Oh, like, um, I'm the interpreter. <laughs> I, I, I have to say, the, the Thomas Jane one, uh, like, I... Uh, I think he's a really good Punisher. I just thought he was put in a terrible film where the, the Punisher turns into, oh, let's construct this elaborate conspiracy to bring down the bad guys, whereas the Punisher should be just saying, right, there's the bad guys, I'm going to shoot them. That's yeah. really all he should be doing. Uh, so that that problem. There is a really cool short uh, called Dirty Laundry with Thomas Jane reprising the Punisher. It's only 10 minutes uh, that's on YouTube, and it's a really good one because basically he's, he's not the Punisher anymore. He's fed up with it. But he does one last like rescue of someone who needs his help, and it's really cool. I thought that was kind of stupid too. No, I liked it. I liked it. I liked the fact he took on these guys. He didn't even have a gun. He just picked up a bottle and went over and started on them. It was kind of fun. I liked it. I want to see uh, 1980s John Woo do a Punisher film. That <laughs> uh, what? Yeah. Oh, no, thank man. you. So much awesome gunplay. When has, when has, John, when has uh, John Woo made a good American movie? Face Off. Yeah, Face Off. No, right. I said good. Yeah, good. yeah oh. Face Off. Face Off is great. I quite like Hard Target as well, actually. Love hard yeah, target too. Much. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> right now. now I have to say I really, really like Punisher Warzone. Really do. Love it. I, I have not seen the Punisher film, so I I can't comment on this. <laughs> but I do like Punisher in the comics, so Yeah, I'm much yeah. more I like Punisher in films. I think films is his medium. Though he was great in Daredevil season. They are talking about giving him his own season uh, TV show, aren't they? But I think Punisher works better as a you know a presence, you know, force of nature in someone else's story. Myself, I think he works in films where it's like an hour and a half, but a TV series is kind of can't quite see how that's going to work. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Oh, sorry, just to chip in there, but uh, I mentioned he never died. I think that there was actually talk of that becoming a television series. Oh, really? Yeah, which I think would be great. Did you hear that, Mike? Uh, he never died would be a TV show? Yeah, like I've seen um, some, like, 
interviews about it and there's like quite a bit of social media stuff and something was like holding it back but i would love to see that why is everything gonna be a tv show now <laughs> yeah, yeah. Popular yeah thing something the else has seen turned into a tv show the exorcist, yeah that's, isn't it they're talking about the exorcist is a tv show so oh, whoa God, what? That's, that's the problem because it's like i you know you've got these 15 episode series and it's like i don't have really we got angsty teen satan like really <laughs> i saw something from my sister the, um the other day and it was sabrina's teenage witch as in sabrina the teenage witch now has a teenage daughter i don't know whether it's just like a pile of crap a fan made thing but it terrified me oh i'm so old <laughs> tell me about it gosh i oh man oh anyway <laughs> we're gonna go to a break here and when we come back we are going to talk about chinese ghost story stay tuned right here on united nations of horror we can't talk about superheroes more For centuries, they've roamed the Earth, unseen by human eyes, imprisoned for all eternity. Their masters grow strong, enriched by the souls of men. In a place where fantasy and reality collide, one will defy her destiny and dare to fall in love with mortal man. Now, as the forces of darkness unite against them, a mysterious warrior will stand by their side, and together they will awaken a new beginning. Leslie Chern, Joey Wong, and Wu Ma. A Chinese ghost story. back to the united nations of horror back in episode 10 we discussed the legend of the seven golden vampires and we touched on a bit of the history of hong kong films today we're going to return to the mystic land of ancient hong kong and take a look at 1987's a chinese ghost story it's a martial arts horror film with romance fantasy and kung fu all rolled into one the movie stars the late great leslie chung 
who also sings the opening song you heard at the beginning of this podcast, the beautiful Joey Wong, and Wu Ma as the Mad Monk. It is directed by Ching Su Tong and produced by Choi Hark. The plot was loosely based on the short story from Qing Dynasty writer Pu Song Ling's Strange Stories of a Chinese Studio. And Becky, you've actually read some of this, correct? Yes, I did. Um, the book is from the Xing Dynasty, um, which was from 1644 to 1912, and I think it came out in the 1800s, uh, the late 1800s. And it's like 500 tales, uh, classic Chinese folk tales, and they are all by um, Pu Lin, I think is how you pronounce his name. And... They basically fuse realism and mythology to create a really rich, fantastical world that comments socially on critical issues um, in the day. And these include the, um, again, I'm probably going to butcher this, but I think it's uh, Shuangi, which is a, a short story, which focuses on strange elements. And so a lot of stories have the word strange in them. And also the Shiguai, I think, and that is literally translated are miraculous tales and this particular one is the magic sword and it's quite interesting comparing it to the film in terms of the characters the protagonist he's actually married already and he also takes mm. concubines and um the monk is very much you know presence in in a short story but he's well slightly changed he's, he's still kind of guardian but there's a lot of the kind of devilry, like the ghosts in it, are, re- are referred to as devils. Um, even, you know, the female protagonist is referred to as a devil in it. And it's really strange. And in this, you know, in the short story, she is kind of taken in by his family, including his mom and dad and him and his wife, and looks after all of them um, as a ghost. And then later on, as his wife dies, because she's ill, he then marries her and he has a child with her even though she's a ghost it's a really strange wow. yeah it's a really strange tale and it's got a couple of creepy moments in it in terms of the kind of demons that are kind of hunting her trying to take her back to the underworld and also the way that the ghosts kind of survive and like the the tree demoness if you if you will in the film is completely it's very subtle, but they kind of bore holes into the feet of people who stay at the monastery and extract the blood that way and kill them. Whoa. Wow. All of the folk tales in it are really interesting. And you can get um, a PDF copy with quite a few of them um, online for free, but you know it's worth, um, I think the Kindle version is pretty cheap. But you know, if you're interested in anything like this, I'd say definitely pick it up. I think I might have to do that, especially after revisiting this film. It sounds cool. A Chinese ghost story is also inspired by the 1960s Shaw Brothers studio film, The Enchanting Shadow. Now, this film, A Chinese Ghost Story, was popular in its native Hong Kong, as well as several other Asian countries, including South Korea and Japan. At the time, it sparked a trend of folklore ghost films in the Hong Kong film industry, including two sequels, an animated film, a television series, and a 2011 remake. Today, it is considered a classic. So, I have to ask, when did you guys first see this film? And upon first seeing it, what were your initial impressions? Well, I just watched it for the first time yesterday. I was surprised by the humor of it. It was a much more 
fun kind of movie. Because from the opening scene, you think it's going to be kind of an evil dead knockoff. But yeah, I had a lot more fun with it than I thought. It kind of lost me towards the end, but we'll get into that later. But right off the bat, I was having fun with it. Well, I, again, was surprised at the humor. And I was laughing all the way through. I thought the kind of Evil Dead references and the horror, and it was great. Like, again, I didn't have the humour. And the kind of bonkers plot just kept me enthralled. And unlike Mike, I really enjoyed the ending. And I got really tearful at the end, which I wasn't expecting. So I thought it was brilliant. I thought it had everything. I actually saw this a year after it was uh, made. Um, It was on British TV. I tried to research this and couldn't find anything to validate what I was going to say. So (laughs) I could be misremembering. But I remember it being uh, introduced by, I think it was Alex Cox. It was some sort of British film person, a director or something, who talked about it before it was shown on the TV. It was shown late at night. It could have been part of a, a series that was on called movie drone though i've looked into the movie drone and i've even got books about the movie drone series that was on bbc uh which showcased unusual but really worthwhile films uh, and i remembered it being part of that series but the, those it's not in those books so i could be wrong there but it was actually discussed somewhat before it was shown so i was aware before I even started watching it, that it was influenced by the Evil Dead and somewhat by things like Night and the Living Dead and, and and bits and bobs like that. So I was kind of primed before, I, just you know, ten minutes before seeing it, uh, and I haven't watched it in quite a long time. But I did see it, and I re- was really blown away when I saw it the first time. Now in in Britain, we kind of have these, we do have these odd shows that have been imported from Japan. Uh, that were about Chinese myths. Uh, and there was two such shows, and this was in the 70s. One was called The Water Margin, which was a quite a serious show, in, for the most part, about a gang of bandits that were that were reincarnated heroes that were fighting against the corrupt empire within China in medieval times. It was kind of a cool show. So, But that was kind of, certainly among schoolboys and teenagers at that time, it was kind of famous. And there was also another one which was much more comedic called Monkey, which was uh, an import from Japan, uh, but it ga- it gained a sort of, not I wouldn't say notoriety, but a sort of, it was very fun. It had been, it basically it was redubbed by an English crew with comedy voices. It, it kind of wouldn't happen these days. There were, it would be, you know, r- slightly racist, frankly. Uh, and watching it back, you could kind of see that. But it, they were kind of fun, and there was lots of innuendos, and it was kind of a comedy kung fu show. So in Britain, we were kind of used to comedy and kung fu being mixed up in this way. So, ah, so, you, so I was, you guys know about the Cantonese comedy. Yeah. So we were, Well, the thing is, these were Japanese, but they were. it was kind of very similar kind of comedy you know broad slapstick uh you know fights going wrong for comic effect uh, and a lot of that I, i'm not saying this film was in you know and the filmmaker was influenced by those things but they were pretty much parallel you know so i was kind of used to this kind of thing uh so when i first saw it, i really loved it really loved it so i actually saw it back in i think 1988 for the first time i haven't seen it for many years I have seen it more than once. I've seen it a few times, but I haven't seen it in a In fact, I've got the DVD, but I just haven't watched it in a long time. But it's a very memorable film. You, this will stick with you. You may think you forget it, but if ever you see it again in 20 years or something, you will think, yeah, I remember that scene. Yeah, I remember that scene. Yeah, I remember that scene. It does stick with you. It does stick with you. So I, I, I really enjoyed it first time I saw it. 
Yeah, there's definitely something really magical about it. Yeah. I I think I saw it on VHS and it was probably from uh Tysing Studios cuz that was pretty much the largest distributor of Asian films and particularly Chinese films here in the US during the mid and early 90s and uh I was pretty blown away at the time but I agree that it really does stick with you. The singing, you know, the bit with the disco dancing kind of fighting <laughs> yeah. acrobatics is really sticks with you uh, but yeah I, I noticed online mike you were kind of surprised when that kicked off you even commented on facebook oh yeah what the fuck was with the rest <laughs> <laughs> yeah we'll we'll get there we will definitely get there but the opening scene it shows a man being seduced by a woman and the camera indeed travels into the temple evil dead style so i mean Certainly, when you first watch this, you get that Evil Dead kind of impression, you know, of the the camera going through the woods into the building. And so if you're familiar with Evil Dead, I think um, you'll instantly re- kind of relate to this. But the, the kind of silly thing is, I had not seen Evil Dead. I actually saw Chinese Ghost Story before I saw Evil Dead, is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> so... Uh, when I saw Evil Dead, I related it to Chinese Ghost Story, which is kind of silly now. Yeah, that's fine. Um, uh, one thing I will say is the film also makes an awful lot of use of um, low shot, low angles, uh, which is very Evil Dead as well. It's not just the tracking shots. There's a lot of use of low angles. And there's also an awful lot of use of like double takes, you know, people reacting in a in a really overt manner to something outside which is again very evil dead i think evil dead was quite an influence on this film oh yeah looking back absolutely no doubt about that now our main character is Ung choi san and he is a timid debt collector whose job requires him to travel to rural areas and his life kind of sucks doesn't it <laughs> yeah i, I mean, would say so it, it, the beginning he's like trying to eat a rock because i guess he's so hungry well, he's and... a he's a schmuck to be like he's not i didn't think he was that likable he's kind of a little fucking he's kind of a little pussy okay what didn't you like about ning specifically mike well, he was just a little wimp i didn't like anything he didn't have any aspects about him that i cared about all he did was cower and cry and yell you got that scene where the chick is trying to bang him and he just like will not do anything and i'm like are you kidding me man Come on. Uh, uh, i liked him i liked, I him. liked he was, him he was a loser he was a loser but he had a good I, heart, yes you know? i think he was like a lovable loser um, that's, that's I did like the I fact like the universe was dumping on him pretty much in the first sort of act or something. He tries to kick the rock away after he tries to eat it, but there's a hole in his shoe, so he hurts his toe. I was like, that oh, whole opening guy. scene was hysterical. Oh yeah, and like his compass won't work, so he's totally lost. And then just to top it all off, it starts to rain. Oh, and his umbrella also has like all these holes in it, so he might as well like not even have an umbrella. Uh, I also like the fact the town he goes to, they're, they're like nutcases, all of them. It's like, as soon as anyone starts running, the police start chasing them because they think they must be doing something wrong because they're running. And it's like, <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's, it's like nuts. Thieves, and like, no thieves. one will give him any money. And, you know, it's just, and you know he's going to die. Someone's going to kill him. 
at some point. It's just really obvious that's older debt collectors all die. I think I think he says that, doesn't he? You know, the the last one died or you know was killed or uh, it's kind of this is not a good job. Yeah, yeah, I kind of got like, I mean, they say he's a debt collector, but I was thinking, oh, like a tax collector or something like that, yes. and you know, he he opens that government kind of tax book and then the ink has run because of the rain and the guy's like, I'm not paying you. Like there's no way. Yeah. And, uh, so he just, he's penniless and he's hungry. He has absolutely nowhere to stay. And I think it's the, the town people that tell him, Hey, you can go stay at this haunted temple essentially, but it's, it's like out in the middle of nowhere in the woods where you might get eaten by wolves. And, uh, he kind of looks away, and then they're they're like, "Oh, he's he's gonna die." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And every time he looks back, they all look at him, don't they? And, and then start. Yes. When he looks back, they they all go back to their conversation. It's very funny. Um, it's a bit yeah. Monty Python that bit. It, yes, it really was. I wonder if Monty Python was an influence <laughs> on this. Now, I wonder if if also some of Cantonese comedy in the eighties uh, is reflected in. Things like Monty Python, because, you know, you had a lot of um, British people over in Hong Kong during that time. Yeah, I mean, Hong Kong's a British colony, uh, and there was a very strong... And, of course, it, China, the rest of China was was communist and under quite strong suppression. But uh, Hong Kong and, I think, Macau were, were free, basically free ports uh, with a strong British... Uh, certainly, Hong Kong had a strong British influence. Um, so there was this, and it worked both ways kind of thing. It wasn't like they were, um, certainly not in the eighties and probably 20 years before that there weren't like British oppression or anything like that. It was, it was really a a free and kind of fun and busy place. Um, so I think there was probably some sort of British influence there, but China, China's famously takes influence from all over the place and sort of makes, puts, puts its own spin on it. Uh, it it's it it just does that. That's the, the a cultural thing, you know. They'll j- absorb everything and just spit it out again in their own form, like most big cultures. Definitely, you know. You know that. Yeah, Japan does the same yeah. thing, and America. Uh, you know, it, oh it just yeah, happens. definitely. Now, when he arrives at the temple, he encounters a monk named Yinshika fighting another monk. I assume it's another monk, anyway. I wasn't totally sure about that. And his name is Hahao. Ning ends up literally between both fighters' blades and tries to talk some sense into them, but they will have none of it. And eventually, they just sort of like retreat to fight again another day. They both they fly into the air. There's a lot of flying in this film. Yeah, like if you've ever off seen, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like anime style, kind of crouching tiger, hidden dragon comes to mind if you've seen that film. Yeah, um, Gravi- so, gravity is yeah. not a big consideration, is it? If you're, it's an ex- really not. <laughs> uh, I did like the fact that they had this massive fight, and he was standing between them, and he was saying things like, uh, "Love is beauty, eternal," you know, and and he tells them off. Basically, he says, "You should stop following me. He doesn't want to bother you, and you, you should be a bit kinder." And like, <laughs> you think, well, he looked like a little wussy, but he's like actually standing up and telling <laughs> these guys what he, what he thinks they should do. But he's obviously terrified as well. It's a fun fight. Uh, of course, we see the other guy a bit earlier, don't we? He, he, he's these bandits steal his money and he's chopping it to pieces. We basically our loser, you know, hero 
is in the rain. Oh, is that him? Yeah, yeah. He's in the rain and he he finds this little shelter by a temple and he's eating and then this this massive fight appears and he gets covered in blood and he has to move back into the rain to let this guy sit down. <laughs> it's kind of wow, he can't even get peace when he's in the middle of nowhere. So inside the temple there are these rotten husk creatures that to me sort of look like zombies. Ning is very oblivious to them and perhaps the luckiest man in the world because he manages to unwittingly avoid them several times and, you know, he probably would have got eaten. What did you guys think of these kind of husk creatures? There, there was, I mean, there was a bit of stop motion in there, I think. Um, they remind yes. me a bit of the sort of husk creatures in uh, Life Force, you know, the uh, the goofy Toby Hooper movie that was kind of mirroring a bit of Quatermass in the pit they were kind of husk creatures i took them to be the victims the reason why is we see or whatever his name is is it um he gets turned into one doesn't he so i assume that they're all like previous victims uh, of the the ghost yeah Yeah. so they were just remnants of those people Uh, i'm not sure what they were going to do to when they got him but uh that they were that's what they seem to be to me it was kind of cool. like Hellraiser, actually. That kind yes. of the way his, you know, his juices were kind of sucked out of him. That sounds really disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> well, literally, their their life. I think it was supposed to be the life force or the the chi that's sucked out. But yeah, I mean, literally, everything is sucked out of, of these actually, guys. Yeah, where he when he actually lose, you know, the life is sucked out of him. That's some of them effect, practical effects really cool. Really like them. Did the stop motion work for you guys or did you find it to be cheesy? And, and Mike, I'll uh, direct that question to you. Yeah, I thought it, I thought the um, animation on those things were awesome. And even when we leave the stop motion, we get to them just being kind of props. I thought they looked great. I was really impressed with the stop motion in particular. I don't know what it is about stop motion, but like for me, I actually found those scenes pretty scary. Uh, Becky, did you find this scary or, or cheesy? Um. I think cheesy, uh, in, but in a good way. There's good cheese, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, how about um, you? Well, you know what? The first time I saw it, I found it quite effective and scary, but on this last rewatch, I found it fun. That's all. It wasn't scary at all, but I liked it, you know? It was fun. Um, as you said that this kind of uh, spurned the kind of popular folktales, horror, whatever you want to call it, in, in terms of Hong Kong cinema... Is this the kind of start of that kind of flying, fighting sequences that you get in kind of um, Shang Yi Mu's films, and you know, much later that were very popular in the West? There's actually a lot before that, like you know, they call it wire foo a lot of times. Uh, those kind of films have been around really since the 70s, and probably even a little bit before that in the 60s. Although some of those 60 films are are really kind of hard to watch at this point. I don't even know if this is what really popular what popularized the flying. I think probably Duel to the Death from the 70s is what really popularized this sort of fantasy kung fu over-the-top flying deal. Yeah, I have to say, I used to go see lots of uh, old, uh, slightly dodgy kung fu films uh, in the 70s. And there are definitely ones where people just sort of leap and they're flying out over each other's heads and stuff like that. Um, you can see it, for example, in the Lone... Uh, I think you can see it in parts of the Lone Wolf and Cub series from the 70s, uh, for example. But this this film, 
I don't know that much about their history, but it seems to me this film does it in a slightly more cinematic way. You know, certainly with the robe, flowing robes and the, the that's one thing that kind fog. of opulent, yeah, that kind of opulent, really stylized um, kind yeah. of yeah. Well, the leaping is definitely way before. Uh, it sounds like uh, Lucard knows way more about this than I do, but I, de- I definitely remember seeing you know leaping and attacks where people were jumping over each other's heads. I remember one in particular that always makes me laugh. Just thinking back on it, where these this guy's fighting a guy who's supposed to be a, like a master with the what are they called those those like knife like is it C, so, uh, oh, size he's fighting with size and he's supposed to be yeah. the world expert with size and he's spinning around his fingers and this guy's kind of doing the same but then one of them jumps up leaps up and you see him throw the side and it goes through the top of the guy's head <laughs> while he's still spinning these things around and he's thinking like he hasn't realised he's dead yet it's kind, of, it's kind of a really goofy film but I definitely remember <laughs> leaping and running up walls in, in way earlier films than this I would be interested to know sort of what was the film that kind of made for what we know for the more stylistic wire foo? Uh, this may in fact be it though, Becky. Yeah. Just like, a, that's what I meant really. Like, like you say, popularizing Cause I've seen, you know, like you say wire kind of fights before and that just never, you know, this is the earliest one I've seen that's as stylized as later films. You could definitely see yeah. the influence of this, I think, in later films. Uh, but whether I, what this yeah. was influenced by, we don't know. I mean, if you look at, I don't know, um, well, there's other ones like um, House of Flying Daggers, which have really perfected the sort of use of robes and colour and, you know, as part of the, the action and, and the flow yeah, of things. Yeah, because that, that is, um, I don't know pronounce it right again, but Zhang um, Yimou again. So and like I love his films, all of them seem to kind of his later ones. He's more kind of yeah, uh, you know the ones that have got American money behind them. Yeah, I was uh, yeah, the film I, I was trying really to think of was uh, Kung Fu Hustle. By the way, uh, oh God, yes, that uh, is an absolutely you can wonderful see film. you can see the DNA of this film in that film. I think. Yeah, I will say that I feel like a Chinese ghost story was way ahead of its time when you look at other films during this time period. Not to say that there aren't good Chinese and Hong Kong martial arts films during this time, but I feel like this really stands above most of those. Um, I do remember when I saw it, I felt quite privileged because, like I say, it was on shown on British television like a year after its release. And usually back then, it was at least two years before you saw a film in a cinema and saw it on the TV. It was like a, a it, I don't think it was an event thing. It was probably an event for film fans, but it was kind of, I felt quite privileged to see it, you know, when I did. And it was looked beautiful on the TV back then, really fantastic. That's one thing I should mention. It's like the, the DVD I have is probably from the late 90s and... The print I have was not very good. And to make matters worse, the subtitles on the film were just absolutely horrible. Like, oftentimes, they didn't make any sense at all. I know. And that, (laughs) you've seen these kind of films. Yeah, they use the wrong words, don't they? Things like that. They do. Um, I watched, um, I'm going to talk about it a bit later, but I watched, um, I've got, like you, I got some from the late 90s. I watched Chinese Ghost Story 2. And the subtitles were completely out. It was kind of, you know, when it was windy, the word wine would come up rather than wind. Uh, it was like that bad. It was kind of, letters were wrong. Yeah, kind of bad. Yeah, so, uh, yeah. I mean, watching the the version I did along 
with the DVD version I had, like the, the subtitles were so much better and the story actually made so much more yeah. sense. It's, uh, I mean, this is a kind of travesty that this film isn't really easily available on Blu-ray. You can get it, but it's really expensive. Yeah, I was looking at some Blu-rays of it the other day, and, and I really do want to invest in the Blu-ray box set. But yeah, it's it's not cheap. It's, it's really like expensive. If it was forty bucks, yeah, if it was reasonable, I'd buy this film in a heartbeat. Oh yes, me too. Well, getting back to the plot. Uh, meanwhile, outside, the beautiful young girl from the first scene appears, seducing Hao, which we already mentioned. And Hao meets the Evil Dead camera, Fate, as the young girl watches with a sad expression on her face. So we know it's not her actually killing these victims, but she's obviously helping it. Hao becomes husk-like. Yin Shik Ha finds him. Then Hao comes back to life. It's sort of this uh, zombie husk-like thing trying to kill him. But Yin burns his body with just this awesome fireball. And now, what did you guys think of the special effects in this film, especially for the time period? I thought they were awesome. Yeah, they were fa- the fireball stuff and the stuff with like swords, uh, with, you know, with lightning around them or lights around them was really fantastic. I'm bel- I don't know how they did it. I do not know how they did it. It looked great. I loved it. And I loved the kind of blue filter all the way through. There was two things about the film all the way through I loved. The, the whole sk- the cinematography and the scene setting was fantastic. And the music I thought was really great. I think that opening song sung by Leslie Chung may actually be my favorite film opening ever. Wow. Wow. <laughs> it's really good. Like, no matter how many times I hear that song, I can just always play it again and again really? and you know for years and years uh I, i've had the mp3 and yeah i just absolutely love it so mike you, you don't nice care song. for that one <laughs> no, the music in this movie no not at all ah, you did like, like the refrains mike you know when the girl was on it we were, ah, and the sort of sad plinky plunky music <laughs> no no that's sorry i'm not. really underselling it there but i think it was beautiful myself yeah me too i loved it Really? I was actually thinking yeah. I need to get the soundtrack. I thought it was <laughs> cheesy. Like, even in my copy of watching it, and they had the lyrics up, and I was like, oh, my God. Like, I, oh. what is this, a fucking Chinese musical? I will tell you that Chinese and Japanese lyrics <sighs> oftentimes ch- talk about the wind, and they talk about love, and the lyrics don't always make sense, but nonetheless, to me, they're very beautiful and very thoughtful. And we probably got as well. We don't know whether the translation was bang on either. That's true, we don't. Uh, I can tell you that probably in the old DVD version, I have no. uh, I think that in the version, Mark has a lot better, definitely. Mike prefers Iggy Azalea anyway. He can't speak. Exactly. There was no Iggy Azalea (laughs) on the soundtrack. I'm waiting for that (laughs) re-release. Who? (laughs) I'm so old. I don't know these people. It's good. It's good that you are. (laughs) (laughs) The last hip person I know is (laughs) Jay-Z. And I'm guessing he's not popular anymore. I don't even don't know who that is. <laughs> you don't know who Jay-Z is? No. Nah. Oh, God, you guys are so old. <laughs> Th- thank you. <laughs> uh, so continuing on with the story, uh, that night in the temple, Ning hears a woman singing and playing of a gukun, and I'm probably butchering that name, and I apologize for our Chinese listeners. The gukun is sort of a, a Chinese string instrument uh, also, I've seen it listed as a, a Quinn. He heads out to the docks where he meets the beautiful and alluring young maiden, 
from before. We learn her name is Nip Sushin. She tries to seduce Ning, but he does not take advantage of her. And Mike, I already know what you think of this, but I got to ask you guys, was Ning dense? Was he stupid? Or was he perhaps trying to be honorable? Um, I think he was just being a man. (laughs) men do not certainly young men who aren't very experienced do not understand hints and signs (laughs) so I think I I always read it like that I think he just doesn't know that he's trying to be seduced really yeah that's what I think he's like mounting him (laughs) he's basically inside of her at the end of it yeah but men men are stupid so I, I mean, you find this a lot in in anime stories and in Chinese stories as well. Where I mean, they're just kind of young and and nervous about uh, these kind of matters. I guess you would say. But, but he also didn't appear nervous, did he? he just seemed unaware. Oh, is how I seem, Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, also you could say I think it was kind of honorable. Although I would say he's probably more dense than honorable. <laughs> I, I like how he gets like thrown into the water at that point and and he's like where am i because she's like knocked him out <laughs> and the like the choreography between them as he's like you know don't lean on me you know you're, you're cold i'm gonna make you cold i kind of think he was, he was so wet it was just hilarious like that really did make me laugh oh yeah me too oh yeah he says that she looks like pasty white i'm like <laughs> oh my god guy that, that sounds like a bad <laughs> subtitle yeah he's like you should go to the doctor. <laughs> you're, you're, you look pale or something like that. <laughs> and I was thinking, yeah, way to be romantic, buddy. So hearing Yin approaching, Suishin flees but leaves behind her Guquin instrument. Ying gives chase, but Ning helps her to escape the monk. And at the same time, he returns her instrument. However, Ning's plan doesn't go as well as he thought as the monk comes after him. Suishin saves him, but an unknown spirit stops the monk from pursuing them. Now, what did you guys make of the spirit that stopped him and, and like, that branch that sort of reaches out and the monk fireballs it? Like, did you kind of have any idea what was going on at that point? Because I remember when I first watched this, and even watching it again, I was like, oh, who who the heck is this? When I first saw it, it wasn't a surprise because I've already mentioned that we have these similar shows on TV uh, where magic happens, you know, and uh, uh, just how, you know, all the characters have got magical powers and they do this. So it's, it wasn't that much of a surprise to see this for me. Well, it's it's certainly not the, the weirdest thing in the movie. And I don't know. I thought it was a, a fun little scene. It, it never kind of brought me out of reality or, or the, at least the reality that this movie sets up. As I was talking before about the kind of short story that it was based on, I love that kind of mix of mythology and kind of realism you know it, i just think that it works really well so uh, you know it wasn't kind of shocking or anything to me i just kind of went with it and it, it just it, with the humor of the you know the tone of the film it just works really well i just love the fact he had all these like little magic spells that he could pull out and do stuff it was kind of cool modern audiences would probably relate something like lord of the rings you know uh the wizards in that to, to Harry this. Potter, so, yeah yeah uh, I can see it going down quite well. Mm. Yeah, Chi- Chinese Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter. Now that if that hasn't happened already, it should because <laughs> I would I would totally watch both those. <laughs> so the next day, Ying confronts Ning 
about the previous night, N tells him to get out of the temple, trying to save him from the ghosts. So, at this point in the film, what were your impressions of the monk Ying? Did you think he was just mad? Because, I mean, we haven't gotten a real firm impression of him yet at this point. So, what did you guys make of him? Well, at first, it's, it felt like he was threatening him, but he actually, you, then we see him sort of speak to himself, so the fool has to live, you know, for his own good. Uh, so my impression was uh, the monk really wanted to be left alone, but he didn't want this guy to die, so he was just kind of being a bit frightening to try and drive him away. Uh, it was kind of, he's a grumpy old man, really. It, it was kind of the vibe. I think it was uh, with these awesome powers and everything, but uh, he just wanted the young lad to leave for his own good, really, and also because he wanted to be left alone too. I think Zaren was like um, like a Van Helsing type of character with his like knowledge and his magical powers, and you know just that grumpy like Mark said old man kind of vibe. Um, you know, looking after the younger kind of apprentice, that kind of archetypal character. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, he's a fearless vampire killer, but he, uh, that's the archetype, isn't it? He's one of those. Uh, but he's, uh, I know, that, you know, not literally a vampire, but he's that, he's that type. He's a monster hunter, but he, yes. he he likes his own company. He's probably my favorite character in the whole movie. I think he's he's a lot of fun. And I, and I think Becky nailed it when she compared him to Van Helsing. He was definitely that kind of uh, master of kind of what's going on. He's the most knowledgeable person, I think, in the whole thing. And that just made it, him much more interesting to me. Plus, he's funny. Oh, he is that. And we'll talk more about his silliness. And here. his musical. Indeed, <laughs> indeed. <laughs> the next night, led by Nip Susin's song, Ning finds her house. And when I say house, it's. I actually thought that uh, the houses and the temple in this sort of looked Japanese rather than Chinese. You know, you have the sliding doors and everything. So I think there's definitely some influence from Japanese film here as well. There, she tells him the story of how she became eternally bound to the servitude of a sinister tree demoness. She explains that as long as her remains are buried at the foot of the tree, her spirit will be forever enslaved. In this scene, we also meet Susuin's sister. The sister, to me, seems a little bit... Something is off about her. Did you guys agree? There was definitely a sisterly rivalry thing going on there, for sure. Suswin hides Ying in her bath water to prevent the tree demoness from smelling him. And this is really the, the first time we get a true look at the tree demoness. We learn that the demoness is marrying Suswin off to the Lord of the Black Mountain. Meanwhile, Ning keeps trying to stay under the water in the bath so he doesn't get caught. Eventually, Suswin puts her head into the water to kiss Ning and give him some much-needed oxygen. I thought he was romantic and cute. I really liked it, and the humour was there as well. It reminded me of other kind of Western comedies, I think, in terms of, you know, like romantic comedies. But it did it with a very, it wasn't forced or formulaic. It was just a really cute scene. I'd agree with that. How about you, Mike? I, I don't like this. I think this scene is stupid. I, I don't, I just, the, the humour wasn't hitting me in the right place. I was finding it kind of really unfunny and... The, the whole cuteness factor, later on I care more about these two, but right now I just, it, it was too cutesy. Like, especially that kiss, I just thought that was lame. 
And how about you, Mark? No, I like to tell those a fun scene. I, I mean, they were trying to mix comedy in with romanticism, and I think it worked quite well. I think the whole mix of it was kind of cool. I've already mentioned how memorable this film is. It's actually quite a pretty memorable scene. It's one you don't forget. Uh, the, the kind of shot of them underwater kissing. It's kind of unusual. Uh, and I liked it. I thought it was good. I also like the sister coming back and and uh, Swissin kind of acting all casual <laughs> while the guys in the bath <laughs> under the water. That's kind of made me laugh. Um, yeah, I liked it. In some ways, I thought it was quite kind of risque in terms of like you know he can see her naked in the water. He grabs her boobs at one point. Um, you know she's she's completely naked from eight, from nineteen eighty seven um, for a kind of a Hong Kong film. Is is that deemed to be quite um, you know, is, is that gratuitous or not? Well, I wouldn't say it's category three. I mean, you have definitely some other films that I've seen that are pretty uh, sleazy, I guess you would say, from that period. And, and I think this was done in sort of a more funny, uh, silly kind of classical way rather than, you know, yeah. trying to be perverse. Uh, this feel, the way this film was about as innocent as they could film it. And, uh, you know, they obviously yeah. deliberately did it that way. So it was it was more for comedy. It was, it was sweet. It was sweet, you know. Getting back to the demon tree, uh, what did you guys think of her costume and, and that that voice? You know, the, it, the voice alternated between a male and a female and the... I mean, to me, I, I found it really freaky. What did you guys think? I, I always find it really freaky when you have um, kind of a male voice and a female voice like, within the exorcist, things like that. It really kind of creeps me out. So I thought, I thought it was really effective. And I thought, you know, went well with the scene. And um, it was a really interesting kind of um, antagonist in the film to have this type of spirit and the way that it, with the tongue and everything like that. Mark, how about you? I think this this cross-gender approach to certain characters is actually something that might be influenced by Japanese TV. I've definitely seen things from the 70s, oh, sorry, earlier than this film was made, where there's definitely cross-gender roles going on. Uh, I've already mentioned a few of the ones that were on British TV. There was there, there was one series, as, a, as I say, called Monkey, where there was a monk was a main character through the whole run of the show uh, and this male monk was actually played by a girl uh, and in other scenes in, in this series and in other series you see Buddha as a woman and it seems to be certainly in Japanese things there's this the transgender sorry cross-gender sort of stuff is 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 not unusual and you get it a bit in British culture certainly in things like pantomime where you know we have a male character played by a woman and stuff like that and it's just part of the show and I th- I actually think that this this uh, decision around this person was kind of taking that and running with it it was kind of it worked it was unusual it was, it was startling wasn't it it was startling for sure I think you do have that kind of gender fluidity though um, and I think that is very much taken from um, theatre. Yeah. So that was a dude playing her, right? Yeah, it was a man, yeah. I think so. Okay, because that well, weirded me out when he had the, the woman voice. I, I was very confused because then I felt bad because I thought I was thinking that this woman looked like an old man. But yeah, I thought she was, I liked the, the makeup and everything in the costume. I thought she was cool looking. Or he, I don't know what the... <laughs> I, I just 
based on the material I have, I keep referring it, referring to the tree demoness as a her, but obviously maybe two genders or maybe it's one of those demons that has like multiple demons inside. Either way, pretty freaky, I thought. So Ning meets Sushin at the dock where she tells him to go home. Uh, and she's basically trying to protect him at this point. The two have a bit of a fight and Ning leaves. Also, I forgot to mention, I, I think it, by this point, uh, she's given him that painting of herself, uh, which he takes with him. So now we have got to talk about the Monk Ying's awesome Taoist <laughs> Dao rap. Yeah, Mike, I, I think you summed it up best in chat. <laughs> like, like, what what did you think of just this craziness in the middle of this film out of left field? I didn't get it. I didn't understand why it was there. It didn't appeal to you. You were just like, what is this? Like, what's going on? No, I was like, can this please end now? I want to die. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, well, I, uh, I enjoyed it. Oh, it was fun. It did come it's, out of left field. It felt almost like, again, we've talked about influences. It, it felt almost Bollywood, didn't it? You know, it's kind of just throw a song in. You know? It was Bollywood doing in a Chinese ghost movie. <laughs> yeah, I know. I like it, though. Yeah, I do, too. Like, it's totally out of place. It, and I will readily admit it, like, it just feels like a, a weird insert into the film. It's totally strange, but it worked for me. Becky, how about for you? Well, I'm a huge fan of Bollywood, and I just love how it just launches into these kind of, uh, you know, similar scenes. So I, I just loved it. Like I say, the tone of the film, the humour, it was just a joy to watch for me. I really enjoyed this one. So even though it was kind of, you know, from left field, didn't see it coming, I really, really enjoyed it. Yeah, I mean, I can't tell you exactly why I enjoyed it's so over the top and so silly to me but i i feel like with the the crazy tone of the movie it like even though it's out of left field it sort of fits yeah. in a strange way Definitely. uh i don't know who made that decision but yeah my follow-up question was going to be do you guys like chinese rap and <laughs> also like i i wonder if this was like the first ever chinese rap i don't know because <laughs> it's, it's not, I mean, Chinese rap seems to be pretty big now. Like, you know, if you play a game like Sleeping Dogs, it's it's all over the game. But but to me, nothing is as good as this towel rap, you know. <laughs> it's, it's just awesome. 
And it's become famous on YouTube just because of how insane it is. Oh, really? I'm not surprised, actually. I prefer baby metal. <laughs> I, I don't think I know about baby metal. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, look it up. Look it up after the show. <laughs> Will do. So the next day in town, Ning sees a wanted poster for a man who looks a lot like Ying. And that night, he returns to Sin Sushin's house, warning her that the monk is a murderer. They head back to the docks to talk as the rain pours down. The two make up, and it's implied that they make love. At least that's how I interpreted it. Was it the same for you guys? Oh, the sex scene, yeah. Yeah. It's a whole musical number. But I mean, it was... (laughs) But it was very lightly... Like, it was was done very... in In a very classy kind of way yeah it's cheesy well you got flashbacks of, of them interacting in the past while they're banging i mean it was just weird no i think it worked fine i think it worked it was perfectly in tone with the movie i i appreciate the fact it wasn't uh sort of salacious in any way i think it worked well the only thing i did think was like man they haven't known each other that long and they're flashing back i will say that <laughs> <laughs> flashbacks from yesterday and this morning <laughs> <laughs> so I can agree in that respect, but you know, it, it to me it works. Yeah, it's cute. It's really, it's all really sweet. I really like it. Now after that, and we're still at the docks. Sushin reveals to Ning that she is not mortal, but he basically doesn't believe her. Like I think he sort of feels like she's trying to just sort of drive him away. With both the tree demoness and Ying closing in, she leaves so Ning won't be harmed. And, you know, this, again, kind of leaves him rather befuddled. Ning runs into Suishin's sister, who attacks him. Ying shows up and saves him, cutting her head off. And if that wasn't enough, her body still continues to kind of try to fight. So the monk unleashes just the fireball of doom that literally blows her up. I love this scene. I think it was really good. It was one of the ones I'd actually forgotten, so it was like it did make me laugh. I did laugh out loud when the when the the sort of headless body started running around. It was kind of funny. I love this scene. I thought this scene was awesome. I, I thought it was a lot of fun, and because I love all the action in the movie, I think it, well, not all. I'll get to that later, but I think the fights are done really well, and this scene was just really cool. Yeah, definitely, and the, the kind of humor in it, and the you know the level of gore was very much like Evil Dead. I mean, I just think it, those elements really worked, um, just like like the Evil Dead. I I kind of feel bad that the sister's barely in it. She basically acts like a bitch <laughs> and then gets blown up. That's kind of <laughs> that's the two scenes. <laughs> yeah, she doesn't last too. Basically, long. <laughs> you see how 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 badass the monkey is. He could just blow blow him up if they bother him, kind of things. That's how powerful he is. Yeah, he's pretty amazing. He's also my favorite character in this. Yeah. He's just. He's cool. They could make a whole movie about him and I would watch. So despite being saved, Ning believes that Ying just murdered Sui Shin's sister and attempts to flee on horseback with Su Shui. Uh, but she disappears just out of the blue. And again, he's left like, what? So you'd think by now like he would believe she was a ghost, right? But, but no, he doesn't. Instead, Ning heads to the courthouse and discovers that Ying is not the criminal on the wanted poster. In fact, he is known as Mandarin Ying and is a formal judge. Was this scene funny to you? Because I, I thought this scene was a little out of place. 
it, it to me it feels like very kind of 80s Cantonese comedy. Uh, what did you guys think, Mike? I'll start with you. I actually I love this scene. I thought like, this I think this scene's hysterical. Uh, I, I can see what where you mean that it's out of place, but I thought a lot of the interactions between um kind of the uh, the judge or whoever and his kind of right-hand man, I thought a lot of that stuff was funny. Like, how he saw him, how, oh, yeah, the police arrest the wrong people all the time and stuff like that. No, I, th- I thought it was a very fun scene. You know, a lot of that could have been the copy I have of Chinese Ghost Story because uh, the subtitles make absolutely no sense in this. So I'm sure if you're watching a better version, it makes all the difference. Uh, Mark, how about you? Um, I really like this scene. This scenes like this always make me, or it reminds me that American cinema, American cinema, mostly is fairly cause and effect, A to B, in story, uh, and a lot of British cinema too. But when you get into other culture, cultures cinema, they are often throw a sort of curveball in terms of plotting or the way scenes are set up or the linear linearity of the story uh italian cinema does that a lot too uh, and it kind of reminded me this really didn't have much to do with anything in terms of the story but it was fun i really enjoyed it i like the fact the the magistrate was so obviously corrupt it was like come on i'm the magistrate when are you going to pay me the bribe so we can get on yeah with? oh it's yeah. kind of really funny i really like that and i really think if you've got poor subtitles you're gonna this scene is pointless as far as you're concerned but if you've got right subtitles it's great it's really fun. It's like, give me the money. Oh, they haven't got any money. Oh, let's forget it. Cancel the case. It's, it's kind of like that. And the magistrate was just bored, wasn't he? He was like, oh, you do it. I'm, I can't be bothered. <laughs> Stuff like that. It was fun. They just want to like beat the heck out of Ning too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Beat him. Beat yeah. him. That yeah. one's going to be a bigger crook than me. Beat him. <laughs> sort of exactly. You get that in a lot of this era, I guess, in... Hong Kong cinema mm. of the corrupt courts and the corrupt governments. It's it's pretty interesting to me. I think sometimes editing has, has a big part to it. You know, things are added later or things are taken out, studio control, all of that. But that's what I like about um, kind of world cinema. And um, like Max picked up on a few different kind of um, national cultural cinemas or whatever. And, you know, it just keeps you engaged and you have to kind of literally work with it. And I enjoy that. And much like the rap section, even though it was a bit, it did feel tonally um, mismatched. Again, it just it just worked, and it just added to the humor for me. Well, Ying finally convinces Ning that Su Xuan is a ghost after showing him her grave. Ying tells Ning that Su Xin has been using him, and and I think he really almost convinces Ning at this point that he's been used. The monk hatches a plan to lure Su Xuan back to the abandoned temple, believing he can lure both her and the demonish tree out. He gives Ning a bell to ring when Su Xuan appears, and he just goes up and hides in a tree. When Su Xuan arrives at the old temple, Ning asks if she really is a ghost. She tells him that she is, and here we kind of get more of her backstory. She was killed while traveling, and her father buried her ashes under a tree temporarily, but was killed before he could bury her properly. And unfortunately, it, it turns out this tree was actually the tree Demonus, which subsequently took control of her corpse who make her seduce men and drain them of their chi. Ning promises to bring her ashes back to her village so that Su Xuan can have a chance to be reincarnated. 
Now, is reincarnation an interesting topic to you guys? It's it's not often discussed in Western culture. You do get a lot in Eastern movies, uh, and obviously, we uh, in the West, we're not. Uh, reincarnation is really not part of our cultural map. If this kind of thing was happening in Western cinema, it'd be more like saving their soul, wouldn't it be, rather than allowing them to reincarnate? Uh, yes. So I'll take it along the same lines as that. I mean, Becky's already talked about this story. It just occurs to me in a lot of Eastern cinema, there's a lot of these stories involving ghosts being used to seduce men. When we did Onibaba, I think I mentioned I, w- I watched a film Kuroneko by the same director as Onibaba, uh, which involved women not at peace. Their spirits, you know, that they appeared to be seductresses to men just to kill the men. Uh, it seems that that seems to be an Eastern thing. Ghosts seem to be there to lure people, which is not such a big thing in the West. But yeah, I just take reincarnation to be the sort of Eastern analogue of saving someone's soul. That's just how I sort of treat it. That's an interesting take on it. And I think that's also kind of evident in the film towards the end. It really reminded me of the kind of Greek myth of Eurydice and um, Orpheus, how he's actually, you know, he goes into the underworld to save her. And again, that notion of souls and the fact that people can live on, if that makes sense, is a kind of either in, you know, a concept in in Western kind of folklore. Uh, But I really do find, you know, the kind of um, the Asian notion of, I think, um, reincarnation to be really, really fascinating. And the specific spirit worship or animism, how that is quite prolific throughout the East. And I think that's the oldest, I wouldn't call it a religion, but the oldest form of worship across all of the world cultures is, you know, spirit worship. And you see that a lot in Hong Kong cinema that cultural aspect of it. I find that really fascinating. Talking about this reminded me that occasionally you do encounter, certainly in Britain and certainly among the older generation, you do get sort of slight odd references to a reincarnation. Um, I have old heard old ladies, if they see a child who's precocious or, you know, appears to be cleverer, more knowledgeable than it should be for its age, I've heard the phrase, he or she's been here before. I've heard that phrase uh, a few times. I've heard that too. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. So it's not just a British thing. So there's kind of this implicit sort of acceptance that it might exist without it being like part of the cultural landscape. I think as well, especially in terms of Catholicism, we have this notion of punishment. Do you know what I mean? Like, so when often I'll use the phrase, oh, I must have been Hitler in a past life. Do you know what I mean? That that kind of... Yeah. What did I do in a past life? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. That we use it as, as think of the idea of reincarnation and the soul and, and immortality as, as a kind of negative, guilty thing in, in the West in terms of like a Judeo-Christianism and, you know, whereas in um, kind of Buddhism uh, and other similar religions, it's, it's very much a positive thing to be embraced at, you know, enlightenment, the actual um, development of the spirit attaining a higher level. Yeah, so it's kind of in there, but uh, it's really in the backgrounds in the in the West, isn't it? Yeah, definitely more than in Eastern films. But I've developed a big interest in Buddhism over the years just because of these films, because so many of them do reference Buddhism, and as you said, Becky, building up the soul and finding that enlightenment. So it's all these are interesting subjects to me, and they're touched on just a little bit in this film. There's also the, all the crazy magic stuff, though, kind of. 
just feels like goofy magic, Harry Potter magic, doesn't it? Uh, as well as yeah. <laughs> deeper spiritual stuff. Yes, definitely. Uh, and you know, it's sort of the same with like Mr. Vampire and, mm. and other films that are similar to this. Like, you know, there's some Buddhist elements in there, but it's not the main focus of the film at all. The demon tree arrives and a huge battle ensues. And you've got this crazy demonic tongue coming from the demoness. And uh, it's just, it's wild. I, I have to say this is probably the most crazy fight scene in the movie. Mike, I, I'm guessing you really enjoyed this part. No, quite the opposite. I hate this. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Man, see, I just can't get a read on you today. Yeah, this, yeah, this felt really out of place to me. And I just, I didn't really have fun with it. It was kind of like, okay, can we get on to the next thing, please? So what specifically did not work for you here, whereas other parts did, of the, the fight scene specifically, I mean? I don't know. I wish that I could figure out what it was. I was just really bored during the fight. And this whole thing with them fighting this big tongue, I, it, it's hard for me to say it was too silly for this movie because it's a very silly movie. But I don't. it was just the kind of craziness that I wasn't really looking for, I guess. I'm more into... I'm going to get into it more later, but the big finale in the Underworld to me was much cooler. I liked that, and I thought it fit in well. This, I just, something about about it didn't quite fit to me. Uh, it is goofy. It's properly goofy, but I appreciate some of the sort of stuff they put in. Like, for example, the tongue, when the tongue split and it turned into a big mouth, and when you see in the mouth, you see the face of the demon, like, covered in goo and sort of screaming at, um, I can't remember what the, it was saying, but it was basically "I'll get you." I think, and I also really like the bit where the monk puts down the the stick, uh, the sort of box, slaps a magic symbol on it, and a sword just flies out of it. And ah, oh, man, that was great. <laughs> yeah, I love that part. Chopping too. the weird tendrils that are coming out of it thing. It was, it was kind of cool, uh, and the special effects were really good too. You know, the glowing sort of uh, lights when he did the chop and all that. I liked it. Really liked it. Yeah, and the um, the sword and the box figures in, in the original story. But when I spoke before about, did you think it was quite risque? I mean, their faces are covered in white gooey stuff. And the, <laughs> tongue, exactly. yeah. the tongue that comes out right at the end, it doesn't look like a tongue. It looks like something else when thing. it's yeah. wobbling in front of their face. Yes, it made me think of Yurotsuki Doji, which is a... Hentai anime. Okay. I don't, I don't know if you guys are familiar with that, but, but I will go. agree with the, the tentacles and the the uh, giant tree wing. Uh, was, you know? <laughs> was this to say where there's kind of an emotional thing between the monk and and, yeah. and, the, and, he's, and, and he's his, cover, his face is covered in goo? Yeah. And he's like, yeah. it's supposed to be he's deeply in emotional. in front of him, and it's like, really? I was, Let, let's say it's tree sap. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, I was laughing and cringy while I was watching that. It just made me laugh so much because, like, they were doing this big. It reminded me a bit, you know, in Gremlins, where there's that, <laughs> that bizarre speech about the father being stuck up the chimney. And you're kind of laughing and cringing at the same time because it's supposed to be emotional, but it's kind of so ridiculous. You have to laugh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for a movie titled A Chinese Ghost Story, that scene was very Japanese. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you see what I mean about the film feeling kind of Japanese at times? It does, yeah. At the end of this fight, basically the demon tree drags Sushin into hell. And they're trying to figure out how to get into hell. To make it short, basically Yin manages to open a temporary portal to the underworld with his sword, of course. 
uh, Ning and Yin enter the underworld and attempt to free Su Xuan's soul from suffering. Now, they're unable to find her in the midst of many of the other spirits. Uh, and then the crazy final battle ensues with what I am assuming is sort of like a transformation of the tree demon or... Was it supposed to be something worse? What did you guys think of the final battle? And did you think it was the tree demoness? I wasn't sure, but I didn't really care. I just really liked the battle. I thought it was really cool. I, I assumed it was, but there's also a talk of Sushin marrying something else earlier in the film. So it could have been that as well. That's what I was so I wasn't wondering. quite sure. I don't think it mattered. Uh, I think we just had a kick-ass battle in hell. Actually, before all this, there was there was another scene uh, where they uncovered the ashes, the sort of urns holding the ashes of people that are buried at the foot of the tree, uh, and I think there's six of them or five of them, and they don't know which one's switching, so they take them all somewhere else to get a peaceful burial, and the spirits of those women also appear. We don't see them anywhere oh, else. Yes. I thought it was a really cool little scene. Didn't need to be there again, but it was kind of cool. Uh, but what it does do is because it he's got this sort of sutra in a book. The priest says to him, don't put it in with them because they won't come with us. So he puts it inside his shirt uh, and then packs the, the urns in his sort of back backpack. But that means he's got the, the sutras tucked away in his shirt, which has an impact later on. Uh, but I did like that little scene too. It, it had nothing to do with anything really. It could have been left out, but it was kind of cool. Definitely. I like that scene as well. Mm. Now, Mike, what did you think of the the final battle? I love this scene. I thought it was it, it was this was the finale that I wanted. You know, fuck that tongue scene. This was like awesome for me. <laughs> I thought it fit in with just the tone of the film, and I thought on a technical level it was really cool. Um, even though I, I didn't mention this earlier, but I really hate the score of this movie. I think it's terrible. But <laughs> which is crazy to me. Oh god! So, <laughs> so it was like from a Super Nintendo game. Uh, but I, I liked the fight scene a lot. I thought it was exactly the type of finale, type of climax that I wanted. Yeah, even though you you could kind of guess where the plot was going because of the um, you know inserts we'd, we'd had that were just kind of crazy and out there. I, you know, I, I really didn't know where it was going to go. And the actual kind of um, resolution, I really didn't see coming. So... The build-up to that, you know, the the final fight scene I thought was brilliant. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, I thought the action was great throughout. But like I say, you think it's going one one way you're expecting it to because of, you know, the type of story is and that. But it really did surprise me. I have to say I I really loved this final scene too. And not just the fighting, though the fighting was spectacular. But there were other things, you know, there's bits where the sort of cloak or the cover of the the demon thing opens and all the heads come flying out and start biting at them and... And that oh, was man, awesome. that yeah. was spectacular. That was crazy. Yeah. Um, but I do remember when I saw this film and the monks like doing the stuff with the fire, firing fireballs to fight the army. Uh, I remember thinking, man, if ever they make another Star Wars, I want this guy to direct. Because <laughs> I was like, this is what Jedi should be doing. You know. What I mean? Oh, I know. <laughs> uh, I do. I mean, this is back in the eighties, so we're talking a long time ago. But I just remember thinking, man, this is so great. This is so great. Um, I just, I love the scene. I could watch it over and over again. That monk is such a badass. I mean, doesn't yes. he stick a sword in his own? foot at one point just to stay in one place oh yeah you know? yeah and he's firing the bows and arrows it's amazing just loved it 
And then he runs out of the, I believe it's the the Taoist paper, and he just like starts running away because he can't throw any yeah. more fireballs. <laughs> he's like, uh oh. <laughs> yeah. He's he's so funny, you know. Yeah. But but so as you said, just so badass at the same time. It was awesome. Or oh, absolutely fantastic. I love the bit as well where he used his own blood. Yes. I'd forgotten that. I, re- I remember seeing it, I remember it from the first episode, but I, it, it wasn't as clear it was his own blood. The thing is, I remember it being his own blood, but then I didn't notice it during this film, so I, I must have just missed it. I, think. I didn't notice it the first time, or for some reason, maybe I thought it was like ink or something, but I, I did notice it this time. I was like, oh my gosh, he's, man, he's hardcore. Yeah. <laughs> I think the first time I saw it, there was different subtitles because I always remember him saying heaven and earth are one, but he didn't say that, did he? So I think I've seen it with different subtitles as well. Well, eventually Ning and Su Xuan are able to see each other briefly near dawn when they come back from the underworld after the fight. Sunshine shines upon the urn containing Su Xuan's cremated remains, but she cannot be exposed to the sunlight. Ning holds on to a curtain to shield the urn from the sunlight as he has a final conversation with her. Sushin tells Ning that the only way to save her soul will be to place her remains to rest in another burial site before she returns to the darkness. Ning buries her remains near the crest on the hill, and he burns a jaw stick for her and prays for her soul while Yin watches solemnly behind him and so ends a chinese ghost story at least the first because there are i believe two other films made and as we mentioned at the beginning there's also a a 2011 remake which i haven't seen and a uh, a tv series in hong kong so i think maybe a chinese ghost story is something we can revisit at some point in the future before we decide on that um, we should definitely get everyone's ratings. So I think that I would probably be at a an 8.5 for this. Um, I watched it for the first time for the podcast, and it's one I've always kind of heard about and come across, um, you know, talking about other films. And I absolutely loved it. It had, like I say, everything. Humour, the gore, you could see the influences, um of other films upon it and how it's influenced um, other um, genre films, both, you know, um, Hong Kong Chinese films and also uh, Western films as well. And I loved the fact that it was a very much kind of focused on the the romantic element. And that's why I posted in um, the UNH Facebook page um, the other day about, um, horror films with you know romantic elements after watching spring and talking about it because i just think it's really interesting that's something i'd really like to maybe talk about in more detail if that's something that everyone else would be interested in and i really think it works for this film it kind of mixes everything together like luke had said this is the first of our kind of action um zone but it's got a bit of everything and i wasn't bored at any one point through it and, you know, like I said, it's totally mismatched. It really works. So, yeah, I'd be at an 8.5. Well, this film, it's a tricky one because I really, there's a lot of great moments of action. Um, and I think there's a lot of fun to be had with this. I've got issues with it. Uh, I, but at the end of the day, it left me feeling good. I, I, I think it's a, I think it's a fun watch. I don't think it's one you have to go out of your way to see. But if you watch it, you will, you'll probably have fun with it. Um, I'm going to give it a 7 out of 10. And something I didn't mention earlier also was that 
uh, somewhere in the middle. Although our main character Ning or whatever, he's a, he's a little punk, but I actually really liked their kind of relationship. The later it went on, as cheesy as it was, so yeah, I liked it. I'm gonna give it a seven out of ten. I think this is a terrific film. I like the way it blends all these things, and it bits of it really shouldn't work, but they do. It just the the sheer energy, I think, of the film and the artistry uh, just carry it through. There's some beautiful shots, some great effects. There's some slightly ropey effects but on the whole i think they're pretty good and i just like it's it's this big old blend of stuff that just works i think both leads we haven't really touched on this the 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 sort of romantic leads both of them are really good i think the woman in particular uh that you know it's it's um, she well, she did, I was going to say she doesn't have much to do. She does have quite a bit to do. But uh, I think she sort of portrays a sort of elegance really and the sort of plight of uh, of this spirit really well. I've seen this actress in other things, and she can act completely different. Completely different. So yeah, this, isn't, Joey this isn't just her, you know, being herself. She's acting here, and it's a really nice piece of acting. Uh, and I really like the music. Unlike Mike, I really like the music. I think the music's superb in this. Um, and I also think the priest is probably one of the cinema's great badasses. He is a fantastic, uh, and I like the actor in it. It's, it, it just works. Um, for me, this is a, a straight nine out of ten. And for me. Uh, man, I love this film. It's one that really does stay with you. The acting is really great all around. I love the characters. Uh, I absolutely love the music. Um, I know we're divided on that. But, um, yeah, it's just every everything comes together. As we said, it's like this big mixing of different ingredients. But I feel like all these ingredients come together to make something uh, very delicious and wonderful. And it's definitely a classic film that I really feel like fans of Chinese cinema, Hong Kong cinema, martial arts films, or, you know, someone who uh, enjoys a good love story will enjoy because it just has so many elements to it. So for me, it's easily a 10 out of 10. I would definitely say go out and get the Blu-ray of this. It is on YouTube. uh, And the subtitles are pretty decent, actually, on YouTube. So, I mean... This is a film to try and see in the best possible version because it does look really nice, but it's not easy to get. So YouTube is not a bad fallback in this case. So uh, yeah, I'd urge people to go not. watch it and send us in some feedback about it. Really yes, interested to see what do. other people say about it. Yeah, yeah, I would love to hear that as well. Also, you know, Becky, I believe it was you who mentioned the kind of the blue light filter. You know, I've seen that done so badly in a lot of Hong Kong films that are sort of trying to copy a Chinese ghost story. And, like, they just nail it in this film, the the blue tones and the, the lights. And it is just a beautiful film, in my opinion. So, yeah, I, I agree with you, Mark. If I think if you can get a hold of a Blu-ray, it's, it's the best way to see it. But if you are kind of on the fence, yeah, check out YouTube, definitely. 
And with that, we're going to take a quick break. But before we do, our horror librarian, Talisha, is going to talk to us about a book that contains a collection of Chinese ghost stories and love stories. Take it away, Talisha. Librarian here to discuss a literary companion for this week's movie, A Chinese Ghost Story. Um, now, this movie is considered an Asian classic, and the plot is actually loosely based on a short story by the 17th century Chinese poet and scholar Pu Sung Ling. Um, my apologies for any mispronunciations going forward. I came across a collection of his stories in the library of the university where I work. But you can get copies of it through third-party vendors at Amazon. Um, but I recommend that you check with a local library first, uh, particularly if they have a good Asian collection. Um, now, this volume is called uh, Chinese Ghost and Love Stories. And it's a compilation of folk tales that Pu Sung Ling gathered from the Chinese people and put them in literary form. So you might think of him as an Asian counterpart to the Grimm's Brothers, actually. Um, and the introduction points all this out, uh, along with a few details about his life, and I recommend that you read the introduction as well as the stories, because it also gives a little background of the types of society that, that uh, spawned these stories. And apparently there was a very strict case, uh, case system with arranged marriages, and these folk tales were sort of an escape, uh, mainly through a few archetypes that were able to transcend social barriers. So you have like the Taoist priest, uh, the scholar, and the singing girl are these main archetypes. And of course you see these in the movie. Um, the priests in these stories belong to a class of immortals uh, that are sought out for their wisdom. And the singing girl, uh, best I can figure, is like a Chinese counterpart to the Japanese geisha. So she's a girl who's very gifted and uh, has great beauty, and she, she's part of this house that earns money from her ability to entertain men through singing and you know, her wits and her poetry. Um, and now the scholar, it's, what I found interesting is that the scholar is also a common hero in these stories. And it's due to a practice in ancient China where uh, a national exam was open to anyone who wanted to take it. And if they passed, they could become a high-ranking state official. So it was a way for China to comb through the whole population for able young men, uh, regardless of their background. Um, so, uh, of course, you have... Uh, the beings uh, that defy all social castes and barriers, and that would be the ghosts, uh, the spirits, uh, even shapeshifters, and immortals who live in a sort of parallel universe with the mortals. So that's why uh, Ning Choi San and the swordsman Yin uh, can directly interact with Xu Sin, even though she's a ghost. So she's just passed on to another plane, as is the, the spirits in these stories. So as you see with the movie... Um, Having relations with a spirit uh, can, of course, be fatal. There is one story that has a scholar competing for the affections of two women, uh, one of whom is a spirit, 
And the other girl figures this out because she uh, sees that he's um, wasting away. So she's done caught on that he's having an affair. He's having an affair with a spirit. And she warns him that he must stop or he'll die. And I give you one guess as to whether or not he does. Um, another story is a young man uh, pining away for a beautiful maiden who's way out of his league. And so he sends his spirit into the girl's pet parrot uh, just to be with her. And it's only when the girl realizes what the young man has done that she kind of goes to his bedside and she kind of does a reverse sleeping beauty where she awakens him with her love. And uh, apparently, though, it doesn't end very well for the parrot. So, uh, you know, a series of stories that really just kind of like are you can see the same theme over and over again, as you see of the Chinese ghost story. Um, so most, most of these stories, of course, are fanciful. Some are even humorous uh, with a little Confucius-like moral at the end. Um, but if that's not your thing, don't worry. There's plenty that are plenty of creepy there, creepiness there in these stories as well. Uh, the movie, I think, uh, after reading a lot of these folk tales, uh, beautifully captures the humor, the eeriness, and the sensuality that you see in a lot of these folk tales and fairy tales. So if you like a Chinese ghost story, definitely look up the works of Pew Sung Ling, uh, starting with this collection called Chinese Love and Ghost Stories. And that's it for me. Catch you next time. Thanks very much to Talisha for that great segment, and I'm just fascinated to read more about Chinese ghost stories because uh, I'm so interested in Chinese and Japanese culture, um, both vastly different but also similar in a lot of ways, and we hope to have Talisha on the show as soon as we can. Yeah, I could listen to Talisha all day. Well, now we are going to move on to our feedback, and... We just want to thank everyone who sent in feedback. Brian Christopher wrote in and said, A Chinese ghost story. First saw this in the 90s on a bootleg VHS I mail ordered from Film Threat. I love that movie. Love the Blu-ray now. Ah, oh, Brian's got a Blu-ray. Lucky Brian. <laughs> I envy <laughs> We're, we're envious, Brian. Yes. Uh, but thanks for that feedback. Uh, and we had another piece of feedback from Shar Schwartz Tigner, who writes, So good. This and The Bride with the White Hair are two of my favourites from that era. That second one, Bride with the White Hair, is one I have to say I haven't seen that. We've had some feedback from Kieran Fisher, who says, Masterpiece. It's fun, it's romantic, and it's totally original. I love the forbidden love aspect, almost like Romeo and Juliet, but with ghosts and martial arts. It's one of the best Hong Kong movies ever made, and they have made a lot of gems. Yeah, nice feedback, yes. Definitely agree. And um, April Cox uh, Hindelitter? I think I apologize if I said that wrong. What a strange combination of comedy, horror, and romance. I wish I knew more about the Chinese ghost traditions and Taoism, Buddhism too. Maybe you guys can touch on that. It will be fun. Well, thank you so much to April. And I I definitely would love to touch more on that. And and again, I think that we will be revisiting a Chinese ghost story at some point in some other Asian films. So um, talk of uh, Buddhism and Taoism. I would definitely be up for that. How about you guys? Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, I would definitely. I recently was looking into um, Buddhism and animism in relation to Thai culture, and I'm more familiar with Japanese um, horror films. But so that, you know, looking at Hong Kong cinema is, is something I really want to get into. Yeah, you can never go wrong with Hong Kong cinema. I mean, I, I just love Asian cinema in general, but particularly you know martial arts and horror cinema uh, from those countries is just 
so awesome and so different from what we have in the West. I think that's why I like it so much. And uh, I focused really on Asian cinema, I think, probably more than I have Western cinema throughout my life. You know, it's, it's weird, but I don't know. It's just always appealed to me so much. So thanks again to everyone who sent in feedback. We really do appreciate it. And next up, we have our podcast recommendation for this week. And this is one for me. And there are some horror podcasts in here, but this focus is mainly on Asian cinema. This week, it's a podcast on fire. The flagship show, Podcast on Fire, covers classic Hong Kong cinema. Everything from Bruce Lee to Jackie Chan, John Woo, and Jet Li. Featuring in-depth discussions with an aura of fun, Podcast on Fire also features a variety of other shows about Asian cinema, such as Japan on Fire, which discusses everything from kaiju to J-horror to anime. Uh, Other shows also include What's Korean Cinema, Taiwan Noir, and my personal favorite, This Week in Sleaze. So be sure to check them out at www.podcastonfire.com. Okay, so to close off the show, next week we're going to be talking about what we do in the shadows. The vampire mockumentary comedy uh, I think it's from 2014. It might be 50. I'm not sure. Uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts on this week's topic or anything else horror related. Just email us your messages in MP3 or web format or written to United Nations of Horror at gmail.com. Please do. We love feedback. Also, you can call in and leave us a voicemail with your comments on 404-480-2545. Let the number ring a few times and you'll be taken to the voicemail. And please be sure to leave your name and where you're calling from so uh, it gives us a, a better idea of who's talking to us. Head over to our website for all the latest podcast information, articles, reviews at httpunitednationsofhorror.com. Also, come join us at our Facebook group if you're not already a member. We love new people. We do. New blood. We love it. <laughs> uh, yes. www.facebook.com slash groups slash UN of Horror. Thanks, Lucard, for uh, hosting this show. It's been a long, fun one. And fi- thanks to Mike and Becky. And uh, also, goodbye from me, Mark. And until next time, you've been listening to the United Nations of Horror. 人生路美梦似路长路里风霜风霜扑面光红尘里美梦有几多方向找痴痴梦幻中心 Oh 